Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Zach Eastman, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight's picture has no need for any introduction beyond the thousands it's received over 78 years. Uh, There is no feasible way for the review to introduce it in a way that has not been covered to death. So we will introduce this picture somehow. I don't know. I mean, I'll tell you, our only conclusion on the matter is to simply say that this was intended to be nothing more than one of hundreds of pictures off the assembly line of the studio system. One single picture out of the countless others rolling off the streamline abilities of its cast and crew to entertain the public for just another day. Yet somehow, through the collision of many events and the simple truth of fate, this one picture was to entertain the public for more than just another day. It would go on to entertain the people to this very second and never stop. The swarm of talent from all points of the globe that converged on this one picture will never be challenged, no matter how many films come down the pipeline today or tomorrow. Just another movie that just became so much more when 1942 gave the world a glimpse of a place known as Casablanca. So stick around, see the show, and stay behind for a redundant discussion to delight the earbuds. Casablanca, city of hope and despair, located in French Morocco in North Africa. The meeting place of adventurers, fugitives, criminals, refugees, lured into this danger-swept oasis by the hope of escape to the Americas. But they're all trapped, for there is no escape. Against this fascinating background is woven the story of an imperishable love and the enthralling saga of six desperate people, each in Casablanca, to keep an appointment with destiny. I was willing to shoot Captain Reno, and I'm willing to shoot you. All right, Major, you asked for it. (laughs) 
knew how much I loved you. How much I still love you. I know a good deal more about you than you suspect. I know, for instance, that you're in love with a woman. It's perhaps a strange circumstance that we both should love the same woman. What do you want for Sam? I don't buy and sell human beings. That's too bad. That's Casablanca's leading commodity. You can ask any price you want, but you must give me those letters. That's no deal. All right. I tried to reason with you. I tried everything. Now I want those letters. you've seen the picture or remembered it in your head we will get to the talk of the day yes in 1942 michael curtiz's unquestioned masterpiece entered the world and almost immediately became a part of our modern lexicon and a part of our eternal discussion regarding the subject of greatest films ever made subjective of course but casablanca has managed to duck and dodge much scrutiny and remain among the top if not the top of many lists it it finds itself nestled in its influence is so far-reaching that it comes from every single angle of its story and its making. So today, for a reiteration of an old refrain, I have brought on a writer, a filmmaker, a podcaster, and everyone's favorite To Catch a Thief fan. Please welcome back to the program, Matt Willix. Well, thank you. I I don't think I'm anybody's favorite To Catch a Thief fan, but that's... A, that's... On the con- you are mine, and that's the only oh. word that matters here today. Oh, okay. God damn All right. <laughs> Thank you. No, I want to tell you, thank you for coming back. I actually, um, earlier today, I was recording an episode on the public enemy and little Caesar with, um, the pop culture bruise guys. And we, we got to talking about Shamley and they said, we love the, to catch a thief episode. And I was like, Oh, Matt's going to like that. Oh, that, thank you so much guys. Oh, that's awesome. That's, that's great to hear. And then I told them that Matt Willicks was actually a ventriloquist dummy that I control. And then they got really creeped out. (laughs) (laughs) They left the call. (laughs) It's fine. Film club was on the way. Um, but no, um, Welcome back. It was it's great to have you back. You, uh, I, I wish I had had you more on for Shamley, but the one show you gave us was an absolute delight. Um, it, it's 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 uh, it, it's it's fun to talk about a Hitchcock movie that does not get a lot of respect in terms of the artistry of Mr. Hitchcock. Right. Uh, for the yesteryear Ballyhoo review, um, I sent an email out to a bunch of people, and um, they came back with. You know, a lot of obvious answers that I expected to hear. Yeah. Um, you were the first one to claim Casablanca, and I was... Which which I find shocking. <laughs> you were just... This is why. You were the first one to answer the email like with that answer. Oh, so you, okay. You ended up in the... I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in first dibs. Um, <laughs> that's... that's that does not mean that we won't find a way to talk about Casablanca again someday. Like, the more... I, I love this movie and we'll get into my admiration for it so much. I, like I would kept thinking, I'm like, there's going to be like multiple different discussions on Casablanca from a commentary alone that needs to be done on this movie. Um, Cause like, I mean, everybody's done 
a film critic or a film historian commentary and I'm like, but they have they had a podcast commentary yet? And <laughs> and my answer is probably, but we'll just do another one eventually. Yeah, they probably um, but, have. But you also gave a long list of films that I uh, that I'm definitely going to want to get into because like and by long list, I mean, you mentioned point blank Universal Monsters, which I'm like, yes, we're going to talk about that with you specifically, because as long as I've known you, that has been your forte. But um, because we're talking about Casablanca, the uh, the the treasure among treasures for film fans, I'm going to start off by a simple question, uh, which is. It's kind of twofold. One is, what has your experience been with Golden Age Hollywood? But number two, when is the first time you ever visited Casablanca? Oh, wow. I want to ask a question before I get into those, and who the hell are we to talk about Casablanca? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, Roger Ebert's dead. Rudy (laughs) Belmer's dead. um, Um, Drew Casper didn't return my calls. (laughs) (laughs) So... My my experience with Golden Age of Hollywood uh, probably comes from my mom and my grandparents, uh, her parents, because like they they just my mom would just show me old movies, you know, stuff she grew up with, um, which is kind of what we talked about back on the Shamley Silhouette, where yeah, you, that was how you got introduced to Hitchcock mm-hmm. too. Yeah, and uh, funny enough. They never showed me Casablanca. Um, they showed me like you know old musicals and um, like stuff like Abbott and Costello, um, mm-hmm. um, Red Skelton, you know stuff like that. <clears throat> and um, I think what happened was that just so when I got my driver's license i didn't get my driver's license till i was 18 and i had like a job where i had money and i wasn't being smart with it at all i was just spending it (laughs) you know i would i would take my parents car and i would go to target or walmart where they were still selling vhs kids um this is in uh 1999 1999. Jesus <laughs> I was eight years old. So, yeah. so, but I mean, like, and like, that's where I bought, um, I bought, I would just buy movies, like, cause I had either read about them, cause I was like, I had checked out a couple books from either, either the Longmont Public Library or the, the, the high, my high school library, um, just on classic movies and like, just you know being like well i like star wars you know like and just being interested in filmmaking mm-hmm. you know not not having not not yet having any want to either write or make anything but just being like oh this is what i really enjoy i'd right. like to read up on it you know I mean, and star wars is usually like a good catalyst for filmmaking in general like i'm i yeah i, I mean i'm i'm guilty of that as well like that's the or not guilty i'm, I'm proud to say <laughs> yeah <laughs> um it's that's the good entry point for like whoa you can do things on a screen <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so anyway so i'm i when i would go out like you know it was just kind of me the first time you know being having a little bit of freedom being like i'm gonna go to target or i'm gonna go to walmart and look at movies you know what i mean yeah and i my first dvd player was actually my my uncle bought me a computer for my high school graduation so like my first handful of dvds 
was stupid. It was like, you know, Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me, American Pie, you know, you know, Caddyshack, <laughs> and then Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, yes. but who, so, who, so can was, for, who, who could forget? Yeah. Who could forget that wonderful four pack bundle? <laughs> oh, my you God. You watch Caddyshack first, then you watch Casablanca, then American. Pie. Yeah. <laughs> Your but boner but, goes but, up and down. <laughs> but, you know, it just I think what it came down to was like, you know, because I remember buying the Maltese Falcon on VHS. Like I, that, mm-hmm. I still have that copy somewhere. Ooh, you know, and I just like, like oh, dog. Casablanca at Target on DVD for, you know, whatever, 15, 20 bucks, however much new DVDs went for back then. It was probably a lot more expensive. Probably around that, probably around the price range you're talking about, because there's a copy of the, the copy you would have gotten would have been would have been one of my first exposures on DVD to it. But, yeah, it has that Lauren uh, Bacall. Yeah, uh, yeah the Lauren Bacall it. documentary. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think that's what it was. And I wasn't a stranger to black and white movies, you know, and a lot of my friends were like, oh, black and white. That means it's old. It means it's bad. And I was just like, well, no, that's that's not. a. And that's when you shoved your friends heads in a toilet, right? Yeah. (laughs) So I I think that's what it was, is I would um, I would just um, I would watch movies like right before I went to bed. And it's like it was. Um, so I fell asleep to Casablanca. I don't know how many countless times, you know, and, and wake up to the, to the menu, the audio, the, you know, the music on the menu just in on, you know, looping constantly, which if it's the music I'm thinking of, it's that intro music. So it might've woken you up a few times like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty loud. So, so, I mean, that's, that's my, uh, like, so I, yeah, I was 18 and I had just, I had just bought it sight unseen, but I knew that like people considered it a classic. And so that's, that's where my love and my first visit from to Casablanca came from. That's a, that's a, but that's a wonderful way to get into it just by, by the reputation alone. And and as you said, you've already had your experience with black and white early cinema uh maltese falcon obviously so you were already aware that bogart is a is a thing you're already aware of peter laurie and sydney greenstreet from from that movie alone Mm -hmm. um i and and this and this falls in line obviously with what you talked about on shamley where a lot of this exposure came from your folks um or your mom specifically by showing you these films and so you had an early appreciation going on um which you obviously have carried into your adulthood. I mean, you're we're 10 years apart, but like from the first time I met you, you you did not, you know, just stick firmly as an 80s kid. Like you were flat out like, no, 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 no. All of it. <laughs> like, yeah, all of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all of it. Yeah. But um, uh, I, I this is normally I don't like do this too much. But um, on this particular show, as we've been recording, um, but uh, my Casablanca is is in my top five films of all time. It's a film that's very personal to me. Um, I first saw this film. This is a this is a story that I think you'll appreciate a little bit, Willick. So, um, my first exposure was on VHS, like you. Mm. Um, but um, uh, like or at least with Casablanca, like in terms of like getting into Golden Age Hollywood started on VHS. Um, because it starts really with Casablanca. I was nine years old. Um, I was with my grandparents in Julian, California, um, my grandfather, Pete, and my grandmother, Merlene. And I was there for a week um, at, for my first um, 
solo trip out as a kid. Actually, no, it was 10. Yeah, it was 10. And um, they, so I went to their house for the week. And among the things we did on the trip, they took me to Legoland, um, where I got to run around Legoland and get a, get a Lego set from there um, and then take a picture in front of... I have it somewhere, but I have a picture of me in front of Lego Darth Vader and Lego R2-D2 who were somehow oh, okay. together for some reason. Like <laughs> We didn't know what we know now in episodes one, two, and three where like right. you know, those guys were super tight back in the day. Um, right. So... So like how could how could Legoland have known? Um, this but, used um, to belong to his wife. <laughs> George Lucas was at the opening of Legoland. Like, yeah, put them together. <laughs> like, trust me, it's, listen, it's listen, gonna work you want, out. You, you, you want to put them together, okay? It's gonna work out. It's gonna be great. Yeah, yeah. Trust me, I I, I know what I'm doing. I, I'm. It, I mean, I know Phantom Menace got a little bit of flack, but trust me, like Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, there's nobody's ever going to have any issues with those movies ever. Let can you can ever. you tell me why? Can, can you can you tell me why Boba Fett's so popular? I don't get it. <laughs> I mean, he's just a guy who kind of walks around and then he gets kicked into a giant asshole in the desert. I mean, I don't understand. Um, but after the Legoland visit, we went to. I got a Lego set. We went to a family friend's home uh, of theirs. And I can't remember it exa- if it's the same family friend who ended up taking me to my first Comic-Con or not. But regardless, um, they were going to do adult time. And I immediately, whenever I was, when I, even when I was a kid, whenever I was, uh, you know, brought into somebody else's house, the first place I looked was for their video library just so I could look at the covers of the VHSs yeah. and such. And I looked over. They had a small selection. In one, and, and among the titles were Fiddler on the Roof, and Casablanca. And uh, they said you can watch something in the uh, guest room and whatnot. We have a VHS player in there. You can watch it while you build your Legos. And I looked at the tapes that they had, and I picked Casablanca. I'm still not sure exactly why. I think it's because that was one tape, and Fiddler on the Roof was two tapes. And I was oh, okay. like, well, I don't think – I don't know how long I'll be here. <laughs> like, Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so, um, uh, uh, Fiddler on the Roof went bye bye until I would see it years later. It's a good movie, but I don't think I would have liked it as a kid. Um, Casablanca, yeah. though, I popped it in. Um, and I think it, some of this had to do with reading hot movie books at an early <laughs> age and knowing Casablanca was a classic in some respects. But when I played the video, the first thing I saw was not the movie itself, it was the behind the scenes documentary hosted by. Lauren Bacall. Um, oh, okay. You must remember this. Yeah. And um, so I watched that while building my Legos and basically had the entire movie spoiled for me in 30 spoiled. minutes. Spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> but I was a kid. I didn't know that spoiler alerts were a thing or that it would piss anybody off on the internet because the internet, what's that? I'm, I'm building Legos. Um, so I watched the behind the scenes feature and got really engrossed by the behind the scenes of Casablanca. And then I started watching the movie and I got about 40 minutes into the movie before my grandparents said it's time to go. And I remember being Uh. in the car and my and I asking my grandfather, can we get Casablanca from the video store in Julian? And he's like, yes, yes, we can stop. Stop shaking. Like, Because <laughs> I was getting very excited about them. I really liked the movie. I was like, I really want to finish it. And uh, my grandfather, who's uh, his name is Pete, was a lovely man, is the biggest influence in my life. We went to the local video store. They didn't have it in stock. 
So we ended up going to the Julian Library, which was a project that he had helped build and create in Julian, um, or at least helped refurbish. And we got it from the library. We popped up in front of this Zenith television that they had in the middle of their living room. And we sat down and we watched Casablanca all the way through. And I have never stopped liking that movie. A lot yeah. of my love for Casablanca is because it um, is because my grandfather, I think he surmised that it was uh, a connecting tissue for us because it ended up being like anytime I would get on the phone with my grandfather, we'd be talking, we would talk Casablanca or we'd be trying to find Carrot Blanca, which was the Looney Tunes spinoff oh, thing that they did I'm because so glad. we could never so find glad it you on mentioned video. that. Yep, yeah, we're going to talk about it because Carrot Blanca is amazing. <laughs> um, but um, it, it wasn't until Casablanca came out on DVD, the two-disc edition, that I finally got it. And then I was able to go to my grandfather's and be like, we got Carrot Blanca. We, got, we get to watch it now. And then we popped it on and watched it. And we all loved it. We laughed. It was seven minutes of heaven for us. Um, but uh, the first DVD I ever got of it was at Video Village, which was near me, and it was uh, bought with a $100 bill that I found on the floor of the library that I uh, we frequented. And uh, I, I was promptly told I shouldn't have done that because I should have returned that $100 bill to the uh, front desk of the library. And my response as a kid was, but it's $100. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's mine now, and I want Casablanca on DVD. Um, so my exposure <laughs> to Casablanca has... Uh, ha has far reaching roots back and I've watched it minimum once a year since I've been, since I first saw it. I, 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 I'll never get enough of this film. I think uh, this is a question that I have for you is when you finally, like when you watch Casablanca and you sit with it, um, did the film ever feel like it lagged for you the way some people claim that old movies of the past lag or are boring or, stilted or whatever um i think when i was younger i didn't i didn't enjoy the love story as much you know because like that part wasn't as exciting as kind of well, the you're 18 and you're just well, like, yeah. yeah 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 whatever yeah. Smooch you know i'm just like okay <laughs> yeah i'm like oh they're drinking champagne i don't care you know they're driving through the french countryside <laughs> I don't care. And I, I I didn't hate it. I was just like, oh, this is this part's just a little slow. But it's not that long in the movie. Like it doesn't no. it doesn't last <laughs> the 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 Paris flashback really doesn't last that long. Um No. So it wasn't like a oh I now that this is over, thank you. I was just like, oh, this just isn't as exciting as walking through, you know, Rick's Cafe American. Yeah. Um, that, now, does it work a little bit better for you as you get older and whatnot, and you oh yeah feelings develop and such? Yeah. No, I <laughs> I, I appreciate it more, and I and I also understand like it's it's one of the it's just a very well written love story, you know. Yeah, and it's one of it's a what's interesting about the love story is how it's one piece of many parts of the puzzle when it comes to the script of this film. Um, yeah, I have a I have a longstanding way of pitching Casablanca to people without reiterating the love story. I just said it's a wonderful classic film where Humphrey Bogart kills Nazis. And <laughs> it's mainly was because I would try to describe it and be like, look, I know it's been overhyped for you. But if I break it down to an essential, it is a movie about Humphrey Bogart deciding to fight Nazis is a better way to pitch it, too, because. It is this movie apart from the love story is a movie about a person learning what learning why we fight, but also learning about choosing the right side 
or choosing a side. Yeah. Period. Um, he has choices to make in this movie. They they are they are very simple. They are very boiled down to an essential truth about good versus evil, which I think is one of the reasons why when we talk about the golden age of Hollywood, one of the reasons why a lot of World War Two era films or films about you know like defeating the Nazis and defeating the Axis have to come from the simple truth of good versus evil, which is a narrative that has extended into this era, obviously, because see the last four years, for example. But we we haven't like uh, if you look at it from that point blank is that World War Two is a narrative of a war in America and all over the world, for that matter, obviously, since it's a world war that. Uh, had a distilled line of good and evil that was defined whether through, you know, the the different countries you lived in or from the from the press or the propaganda of the era. So like we have it in our heads of like, okay, you know, uh, war to me equals shoot Nazi or something like that. And this is a film that embraces that without making it its central point. So that's why it might be more more accessible than other propaganda films of the era. This this film also takes place before um, the attack on Pearl Harbor, and yes. before that, America was um, neutral. Um, neutral. Um, the, it was very concerned with America first. Yeah, they 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 weren't. We weren't getting involved in the European war, and that that was sort of a popular opinion too among people. Was like oh, yeah. the, like these these problems are not our problems. Um, like we don't need to get involved, and that and 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 Humphrey Bogart's um character, Rick's character, is kind of represents all of America at that point. He was strictly neutral. He didn't he didn't really care what happened in Europe. You know what I mean? And it wasn't yes. until the end that he realizes, okay, no, America needs to get involved. They need to do the right thing. You know what I mean? Like they need to help yeah. in this effort. Of, of squashing the Nazis. Yep. So Nazi squashing. Gotta love <clears throat> it. Nazi you know? squashing. Yeah. No, it, actually, it, before we even talk about Casablanca's production, it would behoove us to touch a little bit on some pre-World War II history, which don't worry, kids, you'll get even more elaborate discussions on that as we keep going through this show, because <laughs> the studio we're talking about that made this film also made Confessions of a Nazi Spy, which is the first film uh, from the major studios to address Nazism directly. When we talk about pre-World War II cinema, a lot that has to do with America's mentality with not wanting to get involved in European affairs has to do with the outcome of World War I, where the atrocities, the violence, people coming back scarred, deformed from the chemical warfare, people did not want violence in their lives. They did not want a repeat of a year, another European war. And I just talked about this like a couple hours ago on the a Public Enemy episode, but... Um, the uh, you know a lot of movements like the temperance movement were able to really progress uh, in a post World War One world because of that disdain for violence and atrocity. So like a lot of movements were able to kind of push through. The America First movement is a situation where obviously it's very clear: stay out of European affairs, focus on domestic issues. Um, 
you know, it, it, you know, not to, we're not going to dig too deep into this, but the, there's a reality that a lot of the America First movement also has to do with anti-Semitism, amongst other things. And um, one of its staunchest supporters was a, you know, a certain flyboy who, um, it's Charles Lindbergh. Um, but um, he, uh, he, but, but regardless, uh, one of the things that the studios had to contend with was is that you cannot, uh, uh, to show Germany in a bad light in film. Um, this was a co-op agreement essentially with the studios, the state censors, local censors, uh, the Hayes Code, and basically the Senate itself. You were just, it was just said out loud, don't do it. And the studios yeah. also had a reason not to financially <clears throat> because Germany accounted for a big chunk of their market. Their their the European market for American films was very very big. Yeah. Um you would you would think that Germany being a pioneer of filmmaking would have its own heavy heavy industry, but the truth is American films were super popular overseas. Like they were very very popular. Um so much so that like well, just a film we will we'll end up talking about down the line Dracula was you know, one of those things where, like, they made an entire foreign version of the film just to, uh, to, just to get it out there. It's like they knew that they could capitalize on that market. Yeah. Um. But uh. So the the mentions of Nazism come instead in the form of allegory. So if you have a film like Juarez or uh, Life of Emil Zola, you have to deal with anti-Semitism and Nazism specifically in uh, shaded terms. They have to come from more about like the idea of democracy versus not democracy or uh, persecution of any kind. Those are the ways you got around it yeah. up until Confessions of a Nazi Spy in 1939, where, um, y you know, that the, the once once that film comes out, the gates kind of open at this point, Warner Brothers has long already pulled itself from the German market. MGM ends up being the last one to pull from the German market, like virtually within the time frame of Pearl Harbor happening. So Louis B. Mayer was the last one to be like, nah, 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 nah. I'm going to keep <laughs> making money off of these Nazis and whatnot. Yeah. And then, you know, he was he was finally turned around after Pearl Harbor and then went up to Mr. William Wyler and said to him, you know what? You can show bad Nazis in Mrs. Miniver. That's totally fucking okay. Yeah. You know, and then, and Willie Wilder's like, sure, whatever, traitor. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but the Warner Brothers were very, very aware of the situation going on in Europe, as most as most Jewish Americans were at that at that time. And so, but they were the first to pull out because they staunchly disapproved of Hitler and obviously what was going on because of Hitler's regime. Um, with the with from crystal knocked on down to the Holocaust, like they were very, very much aware that from their descendancy coming being emigrates from Europe, that this was all wrong. And yeah. uh, so they were at the forefront of that. And they also had the unenviable task of having to navigate those message movies to speak to this issue before that got banned. Now, cut to post World War to uh, po post Pearl Harbor, literally on December 8th. 1941 um a play is purchased by warner brothers studio department it's called everybody comes to ricks mm -hmm. and it is a movie that or it is a play it's an unproduced play by murray burnett um and uh joan allison and uh murray burnett wrote the play um from visiting europe and seeing the the changes going on there and he felt compelled to write about 
what was he, going on in there. Yeah, he, he specifically saw what European refugees were going through mm-hmm. and um, felt really bad um, for them and and saw what, you know, the Nazis were doing to Europe. And there's, and there's a, and as a result, there's a, um, there's a compelling, there's a, there's, there's a compelling term in him to be like, I got to write about this. He was in Antwerp, Belgium, and he was with some friends of his who lived there and they said, Hey, let's go out to this club tonight. And I forget what the name of the club is, but they went to this club and it was, it was basically the inspiration for Rick's. Because yeah. there was just all these people from all over the world there, and there was a black man playing jazz, like bluesy, like blues and jazz behind a piano, and he just told his wife, he goes, "Oh man, this would be a great setting for a play." Yep, yeah. this would be a great that this um uh the, the Cafe American um that we know so well, it comes out of this 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 imagery that Burnett and Joan Allison are seeing at the time, which at the time Joan Allison was Murray Burnett's wife. And, um, so they get this written, it gets picked up. Um, the assignment is brought over to a guy named Hal B. Wallace. Um, Hal B. Wallace is a figure that I think will come up a bunch as, uh, the discussions of this go on because, Settle in, guys. He made a lot of classics. Um, he produced. He was the lead producer on films such as, uh, such as The Petrified Forest, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Dark Victory, The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, All This in Heaven Too, Sergeant York, The Maltese Falcon, Now Voyager, Yankee Doodle Dandy, uh, I Walk Alone, Sorry Wrong Number, The Accused, Rope of Sand. Uh, he. Uh, True Grit True is Grit. one of his his one of his later uh um is one of his later efforts. His last uh producing effort as listed would be Rooster Cogburn the um Yeah. The thing that happened in 1975 to <laughs> to cap <laughs> off the Rooster Cogburn saga. Yeah, a True Grit True Grit deserves an episode in the regards of like I actually want to do a side by side on it with the Coen Brothers film because there's yeah. a lot to talk about there. But he, he, um, he did a he did a I'll, few uh, Elvis Presley pictures too, didn't he? He did a uh, uh, Blue Hawaii and GI Blues, GI Blues, and uh, yep. oh, what is it called? King Creole, King Creole, King Creole. Yeah. My fr- yep. King Creole, my friend. This is a guy who he did gunfight at the OK Corral, Dark City. The, 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 I mean, again, The Accused is really good. Um, Desert uh, King, King Creole was King, King Creole was directed by Mark, Michael Curtiz as well. Yeah, and we're going to be talking about Michael Curtiz here in a second. So, Hal B. Wallace is assigned this project. He's the Uber producer at Warner Brothers at this point. Now that Daryl Zanuck has gone on to run 20th Century Fox. Now, isn't so, isn't, isn't he like the creative kind of producer and like Jack Warner's just kind of in charge of financial decisions? Yes, yeah. Halby Wallace actually has creative input. Jack Warner sits in his office doing nothing. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and there's a reason why I'm a little embittered on that because Halby Wallace is honestly kind of one of the more unsung heroes of the Casablanca story in terms of when we discussed Casablanca, he, his name is at the top of a list, but we don't know much about why he was really, he was really, really screwed by the end of this movie. And one of the reasons why he left Warner brothers is because of this movie. Um, but, um, at any rate, he taps Michael Curtiz to direct Casablanca. Now, you know, 
we've in our research that we did to uh, uh, independently, we both watched um, Casablanca, an unlikely classic, which is a featurette on uh, one of the more recent releases of Casablanca. But there's also a bonus feature in there about great Michael Curtiz, the greatest director you never you've never known, and it's very much true because Michael Curtiz is not discussed in the grand scheme of great directors of cinema. Um, obviously that mantle belongs to folks like Hitchcock and Ford and Houston and Wells and Hey, those two people I'm going to be talking about at some point anyway. <laughs> um, but like <laughs> you have, uh, or, or, um, you know, uh, Fritz Lang and, you know, like uh, the, the Michael Curtiz is a fella that comes over after virtually inventing Hungarian cinema is brought over to America, starts off in the silent era of American cinema with Noah's Ark, where they flooded an entire like body of land with water for that flooding scene, um, which if you've never seen it, seek it out. It's it's insane. It's if you think that some of the silent films of the era where insane stunts are happening are insane, you haven't seen Noah's Ark, where there's an entire community that's fucking flooded. Um and uh, but anyway, he ends up becoming basically a uh, the a, a workhorse director. But what Curtiz ends up bringing over from Europe is a lot of European influence, knowing how to move the camera, keep the camera going, uses of li- dark, light and shadow. His his eye is impeccable. If you watch Curtiz films um like dark victory and casablanca back to back you'll notice that there's a lot of imagery that's similar whether it's from lighting or the stage shots um or the cinematography itself the uh, he has a vision of having uh, being able to show the grime as well as the glitz um and he also knows how to direct action one of his biggest claims to fame is of course the adventures of robin hood but also the film that forbore it which is captain blood yeah um and 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 I mean I'm gonna I'm gonna list off some of his other films because like he he tr- truly this this is a filmography that's unprecedented. Captain Blood, Adventures of Robin Hood, as we just discussed, Angels with Dirty Faces, The Sea Wolf, Mildred Pierce, Yankee Doodle Dandy, White Christmas, yeah. Life with Father, <laughs> We're No Angels, I I I Virginia City, Dodge City. Um, and, uh, Dodge City, by the way, if you like Blazing Saddles, folks, Dodge City is basically the plot of Blazing Saddles. Um, except they don't break into Warner Brothers lot at the end and <laughs> punch down De Louise in the stomach. Um, <laughs> I have to tell that to people because I don't think they, I, I can't imagine many people have seen Dodge City, not because it's not a great movie. It's just, it's, it's one of many Westerns that yeah, came out his- this era. I he he should be talked about more. I mean, he, I have some I have some little factoids on him here as well. Um, he's directed he's directed ten different actors in Oscar nominated performances: James Cagney, Bogey, Claude Rains, Joan Crawford. You know, uh, Cagney and Crawford both won Oscars for their performances in one of his movies. Uh, he did he yep. did twelve films with Errol Errol Flynn, and rumor is they hated each other. Oh, I could imagine so. <laughs> he, did, he did 10 <laughs> movies with Claude Rains. He did eight with Bogart. Um, seven of his films were nominated for Best Picture, Captain Blood, Anthony Adverse, Adventures of Robin Hood, Four Daughters, Yankee Doodle Dandy, and Mildred Pierce, with only Casablanca winning Best Picture. 
He's one of 10 yeah. directors to have had more than one film nominated for Best Picture the same year. Yep. And yeah, he uh he had crazy. a very big year in 19 he had a big year in 1938 between Angels with Dirty Faces and Robin Hood alone. Like this this is a cat that worked the gamut and um it's funny that you bring up the whole Flynn and Curtis not liking each other because it would be hard pressed to find a person who like there's very few people who would say that working with Michael Curtis was an absolute orgasmic joy. Yeah, because rumor was he was a bastard on set. Oh yes, very much a temperamental man. If you listen to the Secret History of Hollywood um series on Warner Brothers, you will hear a wonderful little section amongst other many great sections in that series where Michael Curtiz is um, discussed. He is basically trying to, a story that is told is that he tries to show an actor what to do, ends up busting himself up, having to go to the hospital (laughs) and then coming back and then telling that actor, now do what I showed you. (laughs) But my favorite one, it's a, it's a oft told story he 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 apparently told a background extra move a little to the left move a little to the left a little bit more okay you're now you're out of the film go home yeah like, <laughs> like the, that's that's douchey beyond all yeah. belief but you know testament to Curtis's ability he knew what to do and how to get the job done one of the you know when you think about a director that you know, was a work for hire or like just, you know, worked on the factory system and whatnot. You don't just do that and make as many classics as you do. You have to understand what the job is. Anybody in that job at that point could make a movie and be okay with it. But, you know, Curtis had artistry to him. It's just that he, much like the other directors of the era, had to know how to move from genre to genre to genre yeah. to keep getting work. Yeah. That's what the key to Curtis's success is. He could make Yankee Doodle Dandy and then Angels, well, Angels with Dirty Faces first and then make Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yeah. Two very different James Cagney movies. And th- th- very, very and those different. Are, those are my favorite directors, the ones who can jump from genre to genre, you know, and just kind yeah. of, yeah, they're I, just very good at it. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> like, it's, I, I mean, like, I... It, when you think about who are successors to Curtiz's legacy, it's kind of tough because the directors that we tend to discuss after, like from the new wave on, um, it's not that they stick to one genre. It's just that there is um, an aesthetic that they cling to that keeps them footed in certain genres. So like, I would say that Spielberg is a good successor to Curtiz because he does move from genre to genre in his own respects because he's able to do comedy. He's able to do action. He's able to do genre drama. Um, I would definitely say Scorsese can do it. I just think that you'd have to look very hard to find the comedies for Scorsese because they're not the most obvious ones. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I think, um, I think people kind of that have taken up that mantle is people like Frank Darabont and um, Edgar Wright, you know, seems yes. kind of seem to are kind of able to do whatever is thrown at them. <clears throat> yeah, no, yeah. And, and Darabont, Darabont's an interesting case because, like, you could claim that it's like, well, he just does Stephen King adaptations. I'm like, yeah, but they're, like, three different, very different adaptations and then the Majestic. And you yeah. can't tell me that he's not able to kind of blend and mold regardless of what your opinion of the outcome it is. I like the Majestic just fine. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a good movie. It's very good. It's actually I, better I, than most people give it credit for. I love that movie. It's one of my – that's yeah. – that's one of my favorites. 
and I'm trying to think of like, I mean, Edgar Wright definitely, because Edgar Wright literally goes from genre, genre to genre. Yeah. You could, you could pigeonhole him in comedy, but comedy is like one of many elements in his films. Like, not, there's not a single Edgar Wright film that's just solely there for laughs. Like, right. there's horror going on in Shaun of the Dead. There's action <clears throat> going on in Hot Fuzz. There's sci-fi going on in The World's End. Uh, there's everything going on in Scott Pilgrim versus the world. <laughs> and then and there's gangsterism in Baby Driver. Baby Driver's a full on gangster movie. That's yeah. and it's a beautiful gangster movie. Um and so yeah, so Curtiz gets the assignment and he's uh, and you know that how he's gonna be going in there to direct the film, but the the people who are going to assemble this cast, that, that a lot of that falls on obviously like who's assigned to these parts. And man, we got a cast here. But before we talk about the cast that we ended up seeing, it's a this is this is very much a uh, a legend based among uh, press releases and studio interchange memos. But the original um, uh, casting for this role in the three key roles of Rick, Elsa, and Victor would have been Dennis Morgan and Sheridan and. Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and if you're asking me, Zach, why are you shuddering? It's because we dodged a big fucking bullet that this was an actually serious consideration. <laughs> yeah. I think I think George um, because, Raft was also up for playing Rick at one point too. Yes. Oh, my favorite person to talk about, George Raft, or as he's also known as, give it to Bogey. Because <laughs> <laughs> This motherfucker. He, we've got to do an old episode on George Raft and the roles he turned down just in general, like going line by line. Yeah. George Raft's an interesting cat. He's a great actor. He was a gangster who ended up becoming a dancer and ended up charming everybody in Scarface. By charming, I mean terrifying. And um, and he turned down High Sierra, the Maltese Falcon, and Casablanca. That is a triple punch that doesn't exist ever. Like Right. Yeah. Not even Will Smith. Will Smith turned down the Matrix. That's about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like the Raft one still kind of boggles me. But I'll t- to be fair, though, Raft would have probably been right to turn this down because I don't know if he would have been able to see him do it, see himself doing this role. Yeah. Maltese Falcon and High Sierra are different circumstances where I'm like, yes, you could have played that. Stop it. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, but. The Ronald Reagan one is interesting because Ronald Reagan was not a terrible actor. It's just that Ronald Reagan was not going to be able to do what Bogey did. Um, So like, and obviously we have the benefit of hindsight on our hands where we're like, well, obviously it could never have been Ronald Reagan, that guy who acted with the monkey and lost (laughs) his legs in King's row. I mean, but you know what, what's this guy going to do next? Run for president? (laughs) (laughs) Ronald Reagan, the actor. Um, Then who's vice president? Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis. Um, I love I love Back to the Future's presidential cabinet because Jack Benny is Secretary of the Treasury. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the funniest shit ever. Um, well, um, and it's funny because yeah. like Bogart wasn't a leading man until really the past couple years before Casablanca. He was mostly he like um, he was mostly known for playing bad guys. Um, yeah, uh, or the guy who would get killed in the third reel by uh, in the fourth reel by um, by Eddie or Cagney. Yeah, uh, depending on who he was with at the time, he got his start at Warner Brothers really because of the Petrified Forest. Uh, Leslie Howard, 
uh, was the main star of that play on Broadway. Warner Brothers brought him over. They said, we um, we want you for The Petrified Forest. And he's like, well, I'm only going to do it if you bring on Bogart. I won't let I won't do the movie if you don't bring Bogart in um, as Duke Mantee. And Warner Brothers was like, no. And Leslie Howard was like, did I fucking stutter? <laughs> <laughs> and so Bogart got in the picture. And um, he worked around as being that heavy until High Sierra when, again, George Raft said, fuck no. And Bogart said, yes, please. Um, like a good, polite person. Um, and that was his start with teaming up with Houston because Houston wrote that picture. Houston then gets assignment, uh, gets his first directing assignment, which is the Maltese Falcon, and he says, "I want that guy from High Sierra. <laughs> Put him in there." You know, well, is, is, but they want Raft. Oh, Raft said no. Good. <laughs> yeah. With the, I think wasn't the the thing you were coming to was that Jack Warner wanted somebody for Rick, and Halby Wallace said, "No, I'm going to cast who I yes. want." Because of my because of my contract. Yeah. Halby Wallace threw down his little gauntlet there and just said, Jack, I'm going to make it with Bogart. And that's that was the end of it. Um, and Paul Henry. Now, the, here's what's interesting, though, is that the other two members of this cast are also out on loan. Uh, Paul Henry is also is out on loan um, from MGM. And Ingrid Bergman is on loan from none other than my. Uh, my arch nemesis, David O. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to give her up. <laughs> there's a story. There's a story that uh, the um, the Epsteins. the Epstein's were are in uh, David O. Selznick's office, and they're they're telling him the plot of the movie, and um, they they just said that I think they were just they they noticed he wasn't really paying attention, so they they said. Uh, I forgot what they said, but they said something. He was just like, yeah, okay, you can have Ingrid Bergman. Yeah, though, though it's, so it, it had to do with a story involving, like, they, they weren't getting his attention. And um, they brought up the illusions of the Casbah, Algiers, oh, cigarette yeah. smoke all across the place. And that lit up Selznick's attention. He knew how good Bergman would look in that setting. He knew that these guys were not going to, he kind of knew instantly because David O. Selznick was a profound genius in spite of everything I make fun of him for. And he, um, he knew that Bergman would look good and that he wouldn't be made a fool of if he loaned Bergman out for the film. So uh, the compromise was reached. He was loaned, she was loaned out. This is how Bergman gets into one of her very few, um, real Warner brothers outings. Like, cause she stays tied to Selznick for a pretty long time up until, um, uh, up until, uh, under Capricorn. And then after that, the Rossellini stuff happens and everything goes, uh, kerflui for Bergman, unfortunately. But, um, and Paul Henry is a guy that we don't always talk about because he is very much the third wheel of this movie. Um, <laughs> uh, he, uh, he was kind of like, he, he didn't want to, um, he just come off of a hit uh, of a movie called Now Voyager with Betty Davis. So he, yes, uh, he's very, very good in that movie. Too. Yeah. And he so he was just like, I am not going to play a second build actor. So they kind of the there's rumors that he was strong armed, strong armed into into doing this movie. And then there's also rumors that they like kind of coaxed him into it. Be like, well, what if we gave you equal billing with? Yeah. Um, Bogey, Bogey, Bogey and Bergman. Bogey Bergman. And, um, and yeah, yeah, and he, he thought the script was lousy. 
Um, he also thought he <laughs> yep, also that... thought he would be laughed off screen because he was wearing cream colored suits throughout like most of the like right after escaping from a concentration camp. Yeah, it which is an interesting thing that they talk about in the retrospective doc about like how is how is a resistance leader of uh you know of freedom fighters coming out and in, coming into the desert in cream colored suits after escaping after escaping war torn Europe. It is a bit of a stretch. It's also Hollywood in this era, so I don't tend yeah. to question it that much, um, unless it needs to be questioned. And uh, his, he was kind of like the the equal billing was very much a switch off in order to in order to appease him. Um, and Henry in the film, it's interesting because if if I was thinking in terms of really the billing. There's um there's a there's an argument to be made that he should get fourth billing because there's a third more there's another more important character in the movie that I think deserves top billing and doesn't deserve the billing he gets, um and uh, we'll we'll kind of talk about him right now, um, <laughs> Claude Rains, yes, as Louis, as Louis, that is a role that is very much the third bill if not at least the fourth bill at the top of that marquee. He is absolutely wonderful in this movie. It very much is, a lot of it is his movie too, in a certain, from from a certain point of view. (laughs) This film is also Claude Rains' movie. It's not just about these three romantic idiots, you know, like. (laughs) He and, um, he and Bogey's characters have the most change in their character arcs. Uh, in this movie, yep. Throughout the, yep. Throughout the entire film, they are they are the the whole movie. Let's get it out of the way. The whole movie is a bet. Yeah, <laughs> between these two, <laughs> that, that gets made in his office. <laughs> it's when you think about Casablanca as like the ultimate gambler movie. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in 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 terms of but, but we'll go back to Henry for a second. He was an Austrian British uh, actor who. Came overseas. He worked for RKO. Um, he was also before. he also had uh, his Jewish descent. Yes, exactly. So he and he also, along with Conrad Veidt, who, um, uh, uh, who would play Major Strausser in the film, who's also amazing. They are among the many people in this film who are um, actual refugees. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, Henry had risked deportation of internment or internment as an enemy alien. Uh, and Conrad Veidt spoke for him, which allowed him to work and remain in Britain, Britain to make films. They end up getting to America, um, both of them, and a lot of it has to do with just the way things were moving. They needed to get out. Yeah. Um, and Henry had a role in uh, as Staffel in Goodbye, Mr. Chips, and he performed in a, a little British musical comedy called under your hat when he moves to the United States and has a run on Broadway and flight to the West, he's put under contract by RKO in 1941. Um, RKO is making interesting decisions at this time because obviously they gave a 23 year old, a 25 year old gentleman a bunch of money to make a movie. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but he changed his name initially from Von Heinrich, uh, from Von Hernried to, uh, the simpler Henry. So it's a name change again. And that same year he becomes a U.S. citizen. His first film for the studio is Jonah Paris. And from there he goes to Now Voyager in 1942, joining Warner Brothers, and then that's where he gets put into Casablanca. Um, 
he's a he's very good in the movie. It's just again, as we discussed, he is the third wheel. He, but you know, if you look at the way he's um, lit in the movie, as opposed to how Bogey's lit, Bogey is in shadow a lot, or he's half in shadow, half out of shadow, as if to say, you know. You don't know where his character is going to go, but Paul Henry, his character seems to be this beacon of hope. Yes, because he is that freedom fighter. That Victor Laszlo is the last hope, uh, a new hope, if you will, for (laughs) the um, for for the for the freedom fighters. Um, uh, And as long as the Empire doesn't strike back, he will not have to return of the Jedi. Uh, I'm happy that oh, I did that. I know it was oh, stupid. Groan. Um, yeah, but you're but you're right. He is the beacon of hope. And again, that is a testament to Michael Curtiz. Yeah. Um as uh as a director who knows the lighting. Okay, like, okay, this person over here, we need to show the contrast in their character, but Laszlo clearly we know who he is. We don't need to define him any other way. And you know, Casablanca is one of many films that you can point to from this era as like, this is how you explain lighting, uh, symbolism, and uh, use of no- pre-noir. We'll call this a bit of a pre-noir uh, look um, to uh, in terms of how the director would tell the story with the cameraman at hand. And like, th- I mean, it's this Citizen Kane and usually the Godfather are the ones people point to in terms of like, here's what symbology looks like. Here's what, you know, here's how lighting is used to indicate character because they are very much perfect guidelines on them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the the way Laszlo goes through the film as we get into the plot here, the the, the way Laszlo goes throughout the film you know, he he remains that way no matter what goes on and no matter when, even when he has to discuss tough things with Bergman about what he had to do to survive um, in his uh, in his uh, struggles for freedom. Um, but we also have we're going to have this stacked cast that we're going to be talking about one by one with this production. But um, the uh, the production itself, it. it we filming was supposed to start uh, on April tenth, nineteen forty-two. Production delays led to May twenty-fifth being the starting date. Filming was completed on August third at a cost of one million and thirty-nine thousand dollars. It went seventy-five grand over budget and above. And this is above average for the time. This is um, uh, the film was shot in sequence. Because the first half of the script was the only thing available while filming had begun. Now, yeah, before were, we get into the film itself, we have to talk about the script <laughs> because there were rewrites every day. Yep. Yeah. Like <laughs> every no, no day, and nobody day. knew the ending. Nope. So yeah. the, the as we said, the play is based on the, the 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 play was written by Murray Bennett and Joan Allison. The script is given to the Epstein brothers, Julius J. Epstein and Philip G. Epstein, two of the cream of the crop writers at Warner Brothers. Um, they they wrote such films as Mr. Skeffington, um, The Man Who Came to Dinner, Send No Flowers, Pete and Tilly, Cross of Iron. The, these guys were at, at their top. Like One of their credits includes Four Daughters, which is where they received their first Oscar nomination, which is also directed by Curtiz. Um, they wrote uh, and Arsenic and Old Lace. Arsenic and Old Lace. They got a bit of Cary Grant in them right yeah, there, let yeah. me tell you. Um, they, um, the, um, 
it, together they collaborated on the Strawberry Blonde, the Bride Came, Bride Came COD, the Man Who Came to Dinner, uh, the Brothers Karama- Karamazov, uh, the last time I saw Paris. Um, and Philip, Philip, when Philip died, Julius continued to work um, and wrote films like The Tender Trap, Light in the Plaza, Send Me No Flowers, Return from the Ashes, Pete and Tilly. Ruben Ruben would be the final one. Um, and uh, th- this is something that he had worked on with Philip before he passed away. Um, and Julius would end up living a long time. So um, there is um, he's one of the f- last remaining members that is interviewed uh, in that You Must Remember This tribute that's hosted by Bacall. But they're brought on. They start writing for the majority of the for for the majority of the script that they are able to get and then they had to leave because Frank Capra's Why We Fight series uh which started in early 1942 called upon their assistance so they were called for actual duty yeah. um, which Jack Warner was not happy about uh but there was nothing he could do about it because he just sat there <laughs> um <laughs> and uh, also because Why We Fight is an important series of films for the most part um, so Howard Koch is brought in to um, tighten up the film and to get added elements in there. But then we have a fourth writer that doesn't get talked about a lot. His <laughs> name is Casey Robinson. Yeah. And Casey Robinson is the one who really, really gets the love story in there. So yeah. I, and so you have four writers working on this film. Um Koch is one of the last ones interviewed too, apart from Julius J. Epstein. And there's also been debates in recent books, like we'll always remember Casablanca that are unsure exactly how much Koch contributed. Um, So like Koch was brought in when he brought in, he did a lot more of the political and the melodramatic stuff. Yeah. Casey Robinson develops this love story, but Casey Robinson goes uncredited because that was just the way the credit role was going to go at this point combined with you know like how much it has to do with like writers guild rules like who gets how much yeah um he, and he also who he also didn't like to collaborate um casey robinson yeah yeah so this so he was he came on for three weeks of rewrites um he does a lot of the stuff between rick and elsa um and uh it seems like critiz was more in favor of these romantic parts and um he ended up retaining what was initially going to be thrown out, which is the Paris flashback, which is your, you know, your, your favorite. <laughs> um, and, um, and, uh, uh, the, the, it, Wallace himself may have suggested some lines of dialogue for Louis, at the, uh, for Rick at the end, um, to that, um, uh, come into play is Louis, I might have known you'd mix your patriotism or patriotism with a little larceny or Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And Wallace settled on the ladder and Bogart uh, was called back to dub that line in after shooting it finished. And there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get to get redone after filming finishes for a lot of reasons. Yeah. This, so this script is literally coming on the fly. We could jump into the plot right now because the script itself will develop as the plot develops for us. <laughs> um, so um, we open up, the Warner Brothers logo kicks in, and then we get that stirring Max Steiner music. Uh, this we're, we're going to be led into intrigue and danger. 
We got Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, Paul Henry in Casablanca, featuring second build actors Claude Rains, Conrad Veidt, Sidney Greenstreet, Peter Lorre, and also credited Kurt Boys, Le- Leonid Kinsky, M- Madeline LeBeau, Joy Page, John Coulan, S.Z. Sakal, or he was credited in this film as S.K. Sakal, as Carl, the waiter, yes. and Dooley Wilson. Julie Wilson, our beloved Sam. <laughs> and um, we get the credits here. We have cinematography by Arthur Edison, music by Max Steiner, edited by Owen Marks, um, and produced by Hal B. Wallace, directed by Michael Curtiz. Um, we open up in kind of a antiquated-ish fashion, not super antiquated because it's it's an introduction. We have the globe spinning. It's, with the coming of the second it's, world it's war. almost a, a documentary style yeah opening. like news of the mm-hmm. world news on the march yeah yeah, yeah. Or news on the march is in citizen kane it's not an actual thing news of the world that's what we're that's <laughs> what we'll go with um <laughs> i'm not trying to copy for, infringe copyright on orson wells here um the uh that the, we get those opening lines with the coming of the second world war many eyes of an imprisoned europe turn hopefully or desperately toward the freedom of the americas Lisbon became the great embarkation point, and then uh, roundabout refugee tales, trails spring up. Paris to Marseille, across the Mediterranean to Iran, then by train or auto, or auto, or board across the rim of Africa to Casablanca in French Morocco. Here, the fortunate ones, through money or influence or luck, might obtain exit visas and scurry to Lisbon, and then from Lisbon to the New World. But the others wait in Casablanca and wait. And wait, and wait, and wait. <laughs> I just really dug deep into the mic with that. <laughs> and I'm also amazed that I remembered as much of that as I did without looking at anything. Oh, God, this movie's stuck in my head. Um, <laughs> and we get this outside of Casablanca in the market. Fun fact, Casablanca doesn't look like this and never looked like this. This is very much a pure invention of the Warner Bros. <laughs> studio, the production designers. Um, <laughs> this film. Will, will, like, yeah, sure, it looks like that. Will, William Friedkin. <laughs> William Friedkin once shot a, a film in Morocco and he went to Casablanca and he said, it's, uh, what do you say? It was like, it was more like Ventura, California than it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can I do my impression of William Friedkin? I mean, right he's ba- he's, he, I mean a William Friedkin <laughs> imp- impersonation is basically like a competent uh, Donald Trump impersonation. So there was nothing there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic movie. <laughs> yes, Friedkin is much smarter than Donald Trump. That that shouldn't be that shouldn't have to be told out loud. Right. Um, <laughs> um, but anyway, um, we get we get risked right away into a uh, communications room for um the uh, SS there, and they say you know uh, to all officers. Two German couriers carrying official important documents murdered on train from Iran. Murder and suspects headed for Casablanca. Round up all sus- suspicious characters and search them for stolen document. Important. And then we are kicked in to this roundup of the usual suspects, as Louis will later call them. People are getting thrown up against walls. They are being searched. One guy is asked to see his papers. I don't have them on me in that case. You know, like he, he tries to trick them. And then he gets away for a quick second before they shoot him dead in the back. Right off the bat, we are establishing that the Nazis have a stranglehold on this via the Vichy French police that they contend with. Um, And 
a lot of this film has to do, as I said, with Paul Henry's character as well. The politics of this film is, you know, French free France was the um, uh, the realm of French freedom fighters that did not acquiesce to Nazi control. When the Nazis took hold of France, a lot of uh, French collaborators ended up um, uh, teaming up with the Nazis and cooperating with their invaders rather than and, fighting and back. Were, this is why Vichy. Yeah, the Vichy French were the ones that would um, uh, acquiesce to Hitler's order and uh, v- Vichy and the wine it produces is going to be a big topic here. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, you're being thrown into a bit of confusion, much like some tourists who go, what the, what on earth is going on? I don't know, my dear. And then the most lovely um, pickpocket in the world, uh, played by Kurt Boyce, uh, goes, pardon, Michelle, pardon, but have you not heard? <laughs> we un- we heard we hear very little, and we understand even less. <laughs> that that couple that wonderful... couple just seems like they're on vacation, like they're not actually there to like escape the war in Europe. They're just like, oh, we we don't know what's going on, you know. Uh, they, they're much more polite than Bruce Willis when he's on vacation in Die Hard Five. That's right. Like, <laughs> I'm just on vacation. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> um, I will never drop that in my head. Um, but yeah, no, he, he tells them like, this is the customary roundup of refugees. Cause he's already heard as everybody's heard that there was two German couriers were murdered in the unoccupied desert. Um, and he gives this beautiful line, unfortunately for the, uh, these, uh, scurry refugees in Casablanca, some of them have been waiting years for a visa. I beg of you, monsieur, watch yourself, <laughs> be on guard. This place is full of vultures, vultures everywhere everywhere <laughs> and he walks away and these two get up to pay their tab and they go oh how silly of me i must have left my wallet in the hotel <laughs> <laughs> already we established that nobody is safe here we get a plane coming off by um uh we have uh one of our, a character that will come back a little bit later going perhaps tomorrow we'll be on the plane and she's she's kind we of a, cut away and she's, we, she's a very important oh she's a very important character too she kind of helps yep she is uh and yeah. anina um played by joy page who is the uh bulgarian refugee um whose husband um uh whose husband and her are trying to be free uh, to find freedom to america um and we cut to the airport though and we are greeted by conrad veit uh greeted to conrad veit by None other than Captain Louis Reynaud, uh, Prefect of Police. Conrad Veidt as Major Strasser. Conrad Veidt is a kind of a legend before he even steps foot onto the set of Casablanca. Because yes, two, two horror legends meeting right there. Yes, exactly. The Invisible Man meets the man who laughs. It is yeah. all the things. And Cesar friend. from... Um... From the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. <laughs> I know. They're all fucking here. Yeah. They're all fucking The hands here. of Orlac. Yeah. It's a, it's crazy. This is like everybody's here. Everybody's here. Um, and so they they go over the fact that, you know, the Casablanca has um, uh, is is still very much under like the French Vichy control and whatnot. So it seems like there's some interpolitical uh, interpolitical stuff going on with them. But. One thing is for certain, he is here to see the arrest of the two couriers who were murdered, um, amongst other things that he is going to do to assume control in Casablanca. And he, uh, but um, I'm, this, uh, uh, Heinz 
he they he's already informed. We already know where the murderer is. They already know where he is. They already know who it is. Yeah. And they they say like, well, then why don't you arrest him? Oh, there'll be no worry. Tonight he'll be at Rick's. Everybody comes to Rick's. Yeah. And Conrad Wright has already heard about Mr. Rick and also of this cafe that we are about to be whisked away to. Yes. This. So I don't know off the bat, we're already getting a lot of information that in, in an exposition dump that um, doesn't really take uh, uh, they, they take up our interest or bore us and whatnot. He, he Curtis is using action to get us in the mode for here. Um, so he's, you know, he, it's just, it's kind of wonderful. It's kind of amazing that this exposition dump doesn't feel as heavy as it could. We are basically kind of being dropped into the situation, but we're also picking up a lot of information on how Casablanca as a city functions for them. Uh, what the, what the political realm of it is at the current moment. And then the fact that everybody already knows where you go to find these suspicious characters. Yeah. Um, then we are transported over to Rick's cafe American, the outside of this place, very beautiful neon sign. And through a long tracking shot, we are given this, this this beautiful entrance into this exotic world that no one's ever seen before like nobody's ever been in the there's it's lively but there's danger there's there's sadness but there's happiness it's, it's everything's going on and we're, as we're moving in through here we hear Dooley Wilson playing as time uh, as uh, um had to be you and Dooley Wilson gets like the most beautiful entrance of a character you will ever see in a movie. Like that is the perfect way to be introduced in a yeah. movie. Period. Like that is just nuts. How <laughs> wonderful that entrance is. And Dooley Wilson didn't know how to play the piano, so go fucking figure. <laughs> there was uh, somebody behind camera uh, that was on piano. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. So he had to. He had to. He had to mime it along. He was a. He was um, a drummer and a singer. He was never yes. a piano player. Yes, but Dooley Wilson was, uh, no matter what he could do, there was nothing he couldn't do, even make you believe he could play piano. Um, he was in other films, such as My Favorite Blonde with Bob Hope. Uh, he's in Stormy Weather with Lena yes. Horne. Stormy Weather is a wonderful film. If you've never seen Stormy Weather, check it's it a out. Lot of, he's in Passing. Yeah, Fats Waller, Cab, Cab Calloway. Yeah, Dooley Wilson deserves an entire episode just dedicated to his contributions. He was also uh, also a big stage actor and whatnot. Worked a lot on Eugene, Eugene O'Neill plays in the 30s. Um, and uh, he... His last one of his last real big things in terms of being an actor was the show Beulah, which Beulah has a lot of la baggage attached to it because of what it's doing. Um, but it's a spinoff of Fibber McGee and Molly. And um, it's one of the first I will say it is one of the first sitcoms uh, to star African-American actress in the lead role. Um, she does play it. It's based on it, the the role is a maid, but regardless, you know Wilson worked up until 1952, and then his death in 1953. Basically, that's the 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 last of Sam himself. But this is such a character to leave behind for film history that he'll always be remembered. It's yeah, so amazing. I gotta so the he was in competition for this role for, uh, with an actor named Clarence Muse, who played. Sam in the fifties TV version of Casablanca. Yeah. Which is just kind of, which is just kind of funny. I'm, I'm sure they were like, Oh, you know, I, I don't know if the, if the fifties TV version was made um, before or after he passed, but 
I, I just thought that was a just a clever little factoid. I believe that version is 55, so it would have been after Sam's death, uh, or after okay. Dooley Wilson's death. See, that's the thing. I'm I'm calling him Sam. He's so tied into Sam yeah. for me. It's yeah. nuts. Um, it's one I try not to do that with actors and like relegate them. Like, well, this is what they were, and I'm like, ah, dang it. Like he is Sam to me every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, we are brought into this world. We are seeing that people are trying to buy their tickets for freedom, whether through uh, visa, exit visas or paper tr- transfer papers. Um, and we see this colorful cast of the actual refugees playing the staff of Rick's Cafe American. SK Sakal is one of those great ones as Carl the Waiter. He's one of my favorite of the supporting, supporting players. Um, and we kind of get blown through. We get to see that not only does Rick's Rick's cafe have a cafe in it with a wonderful um, uh, artist at the piano. It also has a place to gamble because gambling is illegal in Casablanca, but um, don't tell that to Rick because he's already set up this operation and he don't give a fuck. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And, uh, you know, uh, we are entered into the, we get a bit of an entrance into the, uh, into the, uh, 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 the casino end of Rick's cafe with a guy. Uh, uh, first we start off with uh, a bill being handed to a gentleman who's playing chess with himself and smoking a cigarette. You see the writing. Okay. Rick on the bill to approve the bill, get a nice pan up and we see that fucking mug. That is so goddamn beautiful. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting because he's playing a game of chess with himself you know what I mean? So it's like you can already like it's just early signs of the battle going on inside of Rick's head. It and it's also yep. it's also the way he's revealed. I can't help but think that Spielberg took inspiration from that for like, you know, for like, say, the introduction of the visual introduction of, of Indiana Jones in Raiders. You know what I mean? Like you see his hands, you see his silhouette, you, you know, before you actually see yeah, his yeah, face. It, yeah, he does it. He does it his way as opposed to copying the camera shot itself. He yeah. is using that. Like, what do we see? What to reveal? It's, it got. It is one of the reasons why Spielberg is a wonderful director. Is that he's he's able to lift and then use his own touch on that kind of reveal. And yes, I would agree that is very much a uh, a a Spielberg kind of entrance for that character to 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 bring it to Rick. Like, yes, that I would definitely agree. Um, I'm sure that's one of many, obviously, that he gets influence from. But like Bogart, the way you introduce somebody like Indiana Jones is very much how you'd introduce a Bogart. Because when you start off in Raiders of the Lost Ark, you don't know who Indiana Jones yeah. is. You yeah. don't know. You're, you're like, unlike, I mean, we knew because we had everything kind of set up for us with three, two sequels that became three. <laughs> but if you're watching Raiders for the first time in a theater... Yeah, you don't know. You don't know. You don't know Henry Jones or Henry Jones Jr. from a hole in the ground. So, (laughs) you know, like it's a beautiful way to cap him off. Like, okay, clearly he means business. But then also he's an adorable nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, Uh, and they, you know, both the characters are sort of that, you know, Bogart was kind of known as being tough without a gun. You know what I mean? And that's very much that's very much, you know, characters like that. You know what I mean? Like like Rick, like Indiana Jones, you know. It's just how yeah, those people tough are. With, tough, tough without a gun and also dangerous, but uh, incredibly emotional. Yes. Says a lot with his eyes without saying a damn word. 
you can tell that life has kicked the shit out of him. Simultaneously, the toughest character in this movie, and he's also the most emotionally vulnerable in the movie. Yep, 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 yep. And this is the final transition, really, from Bogart being nothing but the mug that you'd kill at the end of the fourth reel into a fully formed, multidimensional being. Because... High Sierra is the start of it because he's allowed to, he's a gangster, he's a tough gangster, but he has feelings and sympathies. When he goes into the Maltese Falcon, he's a, he's a, he's a shady anti-hero, but he does ultimately fight for the right thing, which is avenging the death of his partner. And he has humor about him. He is likable. He is charming. So combine High Sierra and Maltese Falcon and you get Rick yeah. in Casablanca. Those are the two factor those those two roles combine into make to create a, a person like Rick he's vulnerable he's tough he knows how to crack a joke he knows how to stand his ground on on where he is at that moment and where he is at that moment is he's about to tell somebody from far away that the uh, that there's somebody who cannot come into the, the casino yeah <laughs> and um he uh the person who is can't get in is outraged he says i know there's gambling going on in there there is no secret he's also a, he's also a german yes and uh he he tells bogart to his face as he comes to uh confront him about this he's like i've been in a very gambling room from honolulu to paris and if you think i'm going to be kept out of a saloon like this you are sadly mistaken and then as he they're having this tete-a-tete peter laurie just shoves himself into that <laughs> casino <laughs> oh excuse me please hello rick and he bogey tears up the card and he goes he, your cash is good at the bar, at the bar. Yeah. you know who i am i do you're lucky the bar's open to you. <laughs> like, <laughs> love it i fucking love it and <laughs> Peter Lorre has the capper on it. Goes like, you know, just watching you there with the Deutsche Bank won't the what would think you've been doing this all your life? <laughs> what yeah. makes you think I haven't? <laughs> yeah. or nothing. Yeah. But when you first came to Casablanca, I thought you thought what? Huh? What right do I have to think? Peter Lorre. <laughs> Peter Lorre. This is a cameo. Ugati is a cameo, but it is one of the best cameos in cinema history. Yeah. Because he gets this scene and then he gets his final shootout, really. Yeah. Uh-huh. But Ugati is very important to the story because <laughs> he basically admits to murder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, and hands over the letters of transit that are signed by General de Gaulle. Uh cannot be rescinded, cannot be questioned. He will be selling those tonight for more money than he, he, anybody's ever dreamed of. And then, adio, Casablanca. <laughs> and he asks Rick to hold the papers because because Rick despises Ugati so much, Rick is the only person Ugati can trust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That... Like, let's be honest. Like, wait, do you trust people who despise you? <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful line because it's so. Uh, it he's dealing with that. It's such a beautiful moment of humor that gets that gives us a f- glimpse of Ugati as this guy who's always trying to impress Rick and he's just never gonna do it. Yeah, but that does end up changing because. Bogart takes the agrees to keep the papers as long as it's not there overnight. Um, and uh, Gatti goes to leave to go gamble, and then he goes, "Hold on a minute. I heard there was two German fellows that uh, were murdered that were carrying letters of transit themselves. Oh, 
I heard that rumor too. Poor, Poor devils. devils. Guess you're right, Ogate. I am a little more impressed with you. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, the shudders. And then uh, from then on, we are given more images of Rick's Cafe, not the least of which is everybody's favorite fat man. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, Signor Ferrari. <laughs> Signor Ferrari. <laughs> Who basically, this is a this is a daily excursion for him to go to this club to try to buy it. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Ferrari will not give up. This, you can tell Rick's put up with this as much as he can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, not for. I'm not. I'm, I'm not here. I'm not going to sell my club to you. Weren't you Mr. Gutman earlier on in the year? Like, <laughs> well, it, it, it's also like the interaction. This first interaction with him and Rick kind of shows also um, a side of Rick that the audience can get on his side. Where you know he asks, "How much do you want for Sam?" You know, and mm-hmm. and Rick says, "I I don't I don't sell." Uh, what does he say? I don't. I don't trade in. People I don't. I don't or, buy and sell human beings. I don't. I don't <laughs> buy and sell human beings. You know, and and they just they and, just show Sam and and Rick's relationship as being like, oh, you know, we've been together. We're kind of like brothers. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we're 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 brothers. It's it's and it's also it's interesting because when you talk about Dooley Wilson's role in this film and also that particular line. There's an there's a contemporary a, a, a modern audience today who could look at that and and find some fault with it, but I have never found one person who's had an issue with this, and I think it is because of simply that. Like Rick, Rick makes very clear who Sam is, what his position is, and the fact that it's just like no, like Sam's basically a co-owner of this club. Yeah, like yeah. that's the that's the reality of it. Right. Like Sam, Sam is. You know, you don't you don't leave Rick's without seeing Sam. You don't enter Rick's without seeing Sam. Sam is the fixture here. It's he's traveled with him from Paris. Who knows? Like, I mean, if there's a prequel out there that says that Sam and Rick were running around New York pulling jobs, I'd believe it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they they go to ask Sam, and Sam's like, "Nah, fuck off, fat man." Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and I like like the way he gets brushed off. Ferrari has been through this already, so he just kind of shrugs and goes like, "Whatever." Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. As almost, as almost as if though he knows, oh, you'll sell to me. You'll sell. <laughs> oh, you have no idea the methods of my of persuasion at my hand. Yeah. Like I'm the blue parrot will own Rick's cafe. Come <laughs> hell or high water, oh boy. <laughs> like, this. I love Screen Street in this movie too. I love everybody in this movie. But before that, though, um. Bogart does hide the plans in the piano. In the piano, yeah. Uh, and in this beautiful sequence that obviously is a musical sequence of Knock on Wood, it's one of the classic ways you uh, you think of Vasquez you think of Knock on Wood. Mm-hmm. And through the lighting scheme where the spotlight is hitting the band and Dooley Wilson, as it moves away from the band, that's when he hides the papers. So it's a nice little use of lighting to get us into the mode of like, okay, this is the world he like this, this, this is how he has to hide his other operations while the nightclub is functioning. And, and it mirrors, so he's, and it mirrors the spotlight that is constantly going around Casablanca. Yeah. Which is, um, you know, it's funny. They point out in that doc about like, it's very clear that that spotlight is not an actual spotlight because of the way it's direction. But I'm like, I don't care. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I really could give two shits. I am in love with this world that they've lived in. Um, somebody who may not be in love with this world though, is Yvonne. 
uh, Rick's girlfriend who gets promptly kicked out of the club for being too drunk. Yeah. Um, and let's be let's be honest, Sasha's not helping matters because Sasha, played by Leonid Kinski, and Madeline LeBeau playing Yvonne, um, both wonderful. It's very clear that Rick's uh, Rick Rick's relationship with women is very very uh, um, uh, is very damaged at best. Um, she, he's not, he's not putting up with her or her being that drunk in his club. So it's kind of, and through that, basically Yvonne and him are over at that point. He sends a car, uh, to take, uh, take Yvonne home, uh, and says, and tells Sasha to go with her, make sure she gets home. And then he has to go and and come come right back. Come right back. And he goes, okay. Yes, boss. (laughs) (laughs) And so, like, so we've already been introduced to this world. Everything's pretty much set up, and then Louis and Captain uh, Captain Re- Captain Reno and uh, Strasser come into the bar with their entourage of uh, soldiers uh, or, or other top German and uh, Axis officials, and uh, Louis uh, Louis comes in to basically let. Uh, He's he's already come into the club at this point. He is already sitting down outside because he knows he needs to speak to Rick. After he, after Rick lets Yvonne go, <laughs> you just hear Claude Rains going like, "How extravagant you how, how extravagant you are throwing away women like that. Someday they may be scarce." <laughs> I think I should call a pay, pay a call on of Yvonne. Get her on the rebound. <laughs> Right off the bat, it's a bromance movie all of a sudden, and it's wonderful. Um, and they have this wonderful classic conversation amongst the many. There's classic lines in every bit of dialogue in this scene alone. But what in heaven's name brought you to Casablanca? My health. I came to Casablanca for the waters. The waters? What waters? We're, We're in, in the, the desert. desert. I was misinformed. I was misinformed. Like, which apparently... Which apparently is Leonard Malton's favorite movie quote, and he had it stitched into a pillow that is in his house. <laughs> I love that fact That's about awesome. Leonard Malton. It's amongst the many reasons why I love Leonard Malton. Uh, this is a pro Leonard Malton podcast, guys. If you don't like Leonard Malton, go fuck yourself. <laughs> um, anyway. I, I, I have he some won't, thoughts about too- his thoughts on horror, but that that's for a different podcast. Well, well, okay. I give him a pass. I give him a pass. I, he's the only person I'll give a pass. I don't give a pass to Ebert because Ebert was trashing Night of the Living Dead and trying to get Ro- George A. Romero no work, and I won't have that. Um, <laughs> but Leonard Malton gets a pass from me. He's a nice guy. He doesn't mean any harm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but they have this conversation and it is revealed throughout this. Like we're about to make an arrest in your cafe. If you're thinking of letting him uh, letting him know, don't bother. He can't possibly escape. We establish Rick sticks his neck out for nobody. That's a wise foreign policy. <laughs> and um, I'll try to do this without saying every goddamn line in the movie. I swear, guys. <laughs> um, he, but so um, uh, he also is there to inform him that there is another person heading into this cafe or arriving in Casablanca altogether. Um, a Victor Laszlo. Victor Laszlo. Rick, that is the first time I've ever heard you sound impressed. Well, he succeeded in impressing half yeah. the world, and it's Renault's job to make sure that he does not uh, impress the other half. He must stay in Casablanca. And here we get the most ultimate bet in movie history, hands down. <laughs> um, it, it, the, it, Louis said this will be the end of the chase. Uh, for Victor Laszlo, who is a resistance fighter that has been chased all over Europe and has finally found himself in Casablanca on free French soil. And 
uh, and Rick just says ten thousand francs says it uh, twenty thousand francs says it isn't, and then Captain Reynaud says make it fifteen. I'm only per- uh, I'm only a poor corrupt official, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and he you know and he tries to basically tell he, we get a little bit of background for Bogart here as a character because we find out through this bet that he is essentially betting on the underdog. Yeah. And, um, and he says, because Ricky, I suspect that under that cynical shell, you are at heart a sentimentalist. Oh, laugh at you will. But let me just point out two items in 1935. You ran guns to Ethiopia in 1936. You fought in Spain on the loyalist side. And he got pe- well paid for it on both occasions. Um, and so we know that Rick fights for the underdog. He is inclined toward the underdog. But something has happened in between to make him not fight so hard for the little guy anymore or not care about anybody, period. Um, uh, and we, uh, within this moment, we get the arrest of Ugati as everybody goes down to resume their duties and... You got he, poor Peter Laurie goes like, oh, yes. <laughs> like <he's, laughs> he looks like a dog that got lost on the street. It's so yeah. sad. And, um, but he, you know, he cashes in his chips. He tries to, he eyes an exit. He then walks with these two uh, officials and then bursts past them, bursts through the door and just, hold, he's fool. I think he foolishly knows like this is, this is I'm it. Fucked. Yeah. I'm just going to shoot. Yeah, I'm just going to shoot. He runs around a corner, finds Rick, and he goes, Rick, hide me. Bruce, something you must have me. Rick, Rick, Rick. <laughs> Peter, Peter Laurie yelling is my favorite thing to do. And, and, if, and if you ever listen to Gilbert Gottfried's podcast, he does the best, Peter Laurie. Um, but uh, anyway, Ugadi is captured. You know, more than likely to pay for his crime of murder, <laughs> um, amongst other things he's going to have to do. Uh, but, you know, so like and it, we get another repeat of that old refrain. I stick my neck out for nobody. Uh, and the music goes on. And then we get that this conversation at the table with Major Strasser and Reno again. Too many classic lines in one scene. It's ridiculous, yeah. guys. Ridiculous. What is your nationality? I'm a, I'm drunkard. a drunkard. <laughs> 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 that makes Rick a citizen of the world. Renault <laughs> like, is a character is such a suck up. It is. It is. Uh, it is inconscionable how much of a suck up he is and how much of a mediator he is. Yeah. Um. Because he is. He is. Uh, you know, he he works for free French for French Vichy, but you can tell that Renault does not like the Nazis. He doesn't give a shit about the. He doesn't like the occupation, but he does it because he has advantages that come with right. it. He is he's, very much a hanger on, if you will, an opportunist of the highest order. It's not that Louis is a terrible person. It's just that Louis has a hard time reconciling his own conscience with what he's doing because he's kind of a scumbag. Amongst the things he does is that he weds, uh, he beds refugees in exchange for visas. Yeah. So obviously we're going to find out more about that later, but um, they have this conversation. It's determined by uh, Raynaud and Strasser to an extent that Rick is no risk. Um, but as Strasser says, perhaps. perhaps. Yeah. So, you know, obviously Strasser is going to keep a sharp eye on this Richard, Richard Blaine American <laughs> who cannot return to his country. And then 
like uh, uh, f- like flowers in the desert, we get Victor Laszlo and his lovely wife Ilza Lund, played by Ingrid Bergman, who is as ravishing and luminous and sexy as ever can be in this movie. When it, whenever she's on screen, she, there's there's almost like um um it's almost like soft lighting meant to just like yes soft soft lighting and like and i light up the wazoo to ditch Mm -hmm. there is a definite focus on her luminous beauty ingrid bergman you know under contract to selznick brought over from sweden to be in the remake of a film she was in called intermezzo she worked her way quick through hollywood she did she was not messing around guys like hit after hit after hit like it's ridiculous, and this is—I think—I th- mean, obviously, this is the film we all know. Everybody knows who Inger Bergman is because of right. this movie. It is—you can't even say that about *Spellbound* or *Intermezzo* or uh, even uh, *Murder on the Orient Express*, which she ends up winning like her third Oscar for. Th- this is the movie she's known for. This is her movie, and because uh, even Bogart has other films to his claim, but this is Bergman's movie. Yeah, and uh, we we get uh, them seated at the table. Victor Laszlo is looking around for Ugati because he's supposed to meet him for some letters of transit that we discussed earlier. And um, meanwhile, though, Ilza is distracted because she recognizes uh, the piano player, Sam. And Sam recognizes her, too, because Sam gives the look of, oh, motherfucker. <laughs> like, <laughs> God, God damn it. I got him over her. <laughs> like, <laughs> He was doing, doing so well. So well. And you just show up. <laughs> and you just show <coughs> God damn it, Elsa. <laughs> like son of a bitch. I you have no idea how hard I worked to get him over your ass. <laughs> like <laughs> there are lines that I want Sam to say in this movie that he doesn't say yeah. and it sucks. So I just have to kind of play imagination in my head with it. <laughs> God damn it. This I want him to have the the Samuel Jackson. Listen, motherfucker, get out of the cafe. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, um, but they, um, she asks for the piano player to be called over. He plays the piano and just barely acknowledges her. Like, yep, a lot of time has passed. Water <laughs> yeah, under the bridge. Yeah. Yep. And um, will you play the song for me? Or, or, or um. Uh, she asks where Rick is and he, he goes, I don't know. He goes home early and has a girl over at the blue parrot. Sometimes he goes over there and he goes, um, uh, uh, you must, you used to be a much better liar, yeah. Sam. And he just, he loses. He goes like, look, leave him alone. <laughs> Miss Elsa. You are bad luck to him. <laughs> and, um, then she requests the song as time goes by. Um, and Sam's playing it off. Like, Oh, I don't think I remember it. And she goes, I'll hum it for you. And then we get the uh, the most classic Hollywood uh, Hollywood movie theme in history, guys, as time goes by, which is a song that was not written for this movie. Um, uh, and so, therefore, the score for this film by Max Steiner is comprised of already existing music. So he wouldn't have qualified for the Academy Awards in today's day and age because um, uh, if we can't give Johnny Greenwood an Oscar, we certainly won't be giving Max Steiner one for this movie. Um, <laughs> he, uh, but, he didn't like the song either. Um, no, Max Steiner did not like it. He thought it was garbage. But, but he, did, <laughs> he did. I mean, he used he did 14 different arrangements. If you listen, I mean, you can hear it in the score you know, in different places of, of, as time goes by. So, 
Like he he had to use it. Yeah. So it, the song was originally written in 1931 by Herman Hupfeld, uh, and it became famous because of this film. the The reason why the song didn't switch is because there's a moment where the song is played where they needed Bergman back, but Bergman had already gotten her hair cut for a little movie called The Bells at St. Mary, and so she couldn't do it. Uh, so that, that's what they say. I and that that could be true, but it also could just be like, hey, Maxie, just this is the song you're using, <laughs> you know, use it. There, there is <laughs> there is an element of that. Max Steiner would have been able to have been like, well, shit. Yeah, All right. Yeah. Well, if we're going to use this song, I'm going to use it every friggin' place, yeah. which <laughs> is and just um, my, it's cool that you hear the theme throughout the, you know, at certain at certain spots in the score. Um, cause that's something that also my favorite, like James Bond scores do that where they, they take the theme from the opening, you know, and they weave it into the score, uh, throughout yeah, the film. And, and this is, yeah. And like, and now Max Steiner has done this before and, and within stuff like obviously Max Steiner, he's kind of the definition along with Franz Waxman of what Hollywood composers did because, uh, he kind of Steiner kind of invents movie scores themselves with King Kong. Yeah. In 1931 or 1933. And he goes through the the gamut. He does the adventures of Robin Hood. He he uh, he is. I think his most famous score on its own without the attachment of like a song like this is honestly Gone, Gone with, with the Wind, wind which you know, regardless of, you know, I mean, obviously that film will be discussed in different terms on a different episode, but you cannot deny on Gone with the Wind that that score is fucking incredible. Like it is a very good score. Yeah. Um, and he also did the score for Now Voyager, which had Paul Henry mm-hmm. in it. He did the score for The Informer, John Ford's The Informer, 1935, Jezebel, Little Women, uh, A Summer Place, uh, the, the Searchers. He did. Everything. Yeah, he did. He did a, like, a, a the thirty seven version of A Star Is Born. He did Treasure of the Sierra Madre. He also did Arsenic and Old Lace. It's just crazy. Yep. And um, yeah, and he the composers. When we think of the composers of this era, the names go uh, at the top of the list for me. It's Steiner, Waxman, Tiomkin, uh Wolfgang Korngold, Alfred Newman, Bernard Herrmann, and Mikolas Rosa. Bernard Herrmann kind of lays into me for other eras of film too. Cause like he, obviously one of his last scores is for Martin Scorsese for taxi driver. Yeah. Right? But those are the cream of the crop composers. These are the guys, these are the guys you get. Um, and we hear as time goes by and, um, she listens to it. She laments, she fawns over, she, she, she pulls herself you, back to those you memories. You can just see it in her face. Yeah. She's just like, Oh, there's a lot of regret here. There is a lot of fresh. There's a lot of lost love buried in my soul bogart hears it and just internally flips and then goes over and goes like i thought i told you never to play that fucking song again (laughs) (laughs) like of course no he's i thought i told you never to play gets interrupted and reno not knowing the history obviously because we don't know the history either yet but he goes like oh well you were asking about rick and here he is may i present hello elza hello rick (laughs) Oh, then you've already met each other. Like, I love Louie in this scene particularly because he is going like, oh, well, oh, well. Like, <laughs> and the only the only thing that would make it goofier is if it was played by Frank Nelson. <laughs> and it's not goofy. Be- it's not a goofy performance. It's just like it's his 
personality at yeah. this moment here because he is the in-between here on this lost relationship. They kind of go through their relation or at least their acquaintanceship with each other in very, very brief terms about, well, you know, we were last seen together in a Bella Roar. Um, and I remember the day, well, the Germans wore gray, you wore blue. Um, she's put that dress <laughs> away since then. Uh, and and also this is where Victor meets Rick and, you know, and, <laughs> you know, he... He he's actually more complimentary to Victor than he is to Elsa, obviously, for obvious reasons. He goes like, "One hears a great deal about Rick in Casablanca and about Victor Laszlo everywhere." everywhere. <laughs> um, I, I like I try my best. And he goes, "Well, we I'll try. You succeed, you succeed, which is something I like to use in my regular life now. Is we all try. You succeed." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, and uh, uh, they go over this at this point. Um, Victor has already learned that Ugati was arrested from Harold Berger. Um, who's another member of the French Free French Resistance? They meet each other because of a really cool placement of a ring, because um, uh, that ring is quite unique, mm-hmm. uh, and it has that symbol for the French freedom fighters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but they they get into this conversation about their past, but then it kind of gets tidied up pretty quick because obviously, you know, <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to be in the room with each other right now at this point. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Reno. Um, uh, Reno uh, is is putting drinks on his bill like crazy, but he has a system for it because he goes, you know, it's a simple game we play. They put they put it on the bill. I tear up the bill. It's quite convenient. <laughs> <laughs> Corrupt as <Yeah>. shit. <laughs> um, so they leave. The bar essentially closes for the night because the next shot we get is of Rick drinking alone. He doesn't do this that often. <laughs> um, but then again, he doesn't also drink with customers that often, but he apparently made an exception for a lost love. And, th- uh, and of yeah. course, he, and th- this is also like, um, this is also um, Sam's kind of little scene to shine. Cause, cause every, yes. ev- ev- yes, every, yes, everybody yes. kind of has a little scene to shine. Uh, and even the secondary characters all kind of get a little scene to shine, and and this is his scene um, before before yes, he um, is. before Ilsa shows up. Boss, ain't you going to bed? Yeah, no. ain't you ever going to bed? Going on to bed, and you you, know, you plan on going to bed in the near future? No, you ever going to bed? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny scene. Yeah. It's a funny yeah. moment. And he goes like, "Well, then, uh, then you go. No, sir, I'm staying yeah. right here." And uh, actually, he tells him like, "Boss, let's get out of here. Ain't nothing but trouble for you down here. Like, we'll we'll get out of we'll we'll get out of town and leave. We'll get on the boat. We'll get drunk. Yeah, yeah. You know. And she's and he goes like, she's coming back. I know she's coming back. And he goes like, you can go if you want. Like, no, sir, I'm staying right here. He goes back to the piano. He starts playing the piano. And I love this line before the famous line, Sam. If it's December 1941 in Casablanca, what time is it in New York? <laughs> My watch stopped. Yeah. I bet they're asleep in America. Bet they're asleep all over the world. Uh, but I bet they're asleep in New York. I bet they're asleep all over America. And then he hits the table, and then he gives the line, of all the gin joints and all the towns and all the wilds, yeah. she walks into mine. And But I love that line beforehand because it is telling about, I bet they're asleep in New York, I bet they're asleep in America, kind of a telling line about the call to war, um, about how they're, you know, the. I mean, one of the things that was said after Pearl Harbor was bombed, apparently the emperor had said, or one of the generals said, we had uh, awakened the sleeping giant. Yeah. And, you know, this is very much about, like, this instance of, like, you know, 
America's still not really entered the war yet at this point, but they are a free safe haven for people if they can get in. Yeah. Fun fact, we were not really good about getting refugees from other countries into our country. Um, a lot of those people that were able to immigrate successfully uh, were gotten there because family members were able to financially secure them abroad. Carl Lemley Sr., the head of Universal Studios, spent a lot of his fortune getting people out of the village that he lived in before emigrating to America. Right. Um, a lot of people had to do it. It's a very... When you talk about the Holocaust and you talk about the people who were able to escape, it's it's very much... You know, a situation where the United States didn't do the best job at emigrating people over and getting people out. Um, you know, and it's one of those things where it, it, it makes a movie like Schindler's List all the more powerful when you when you consider how many lives he did save. Yes. And such. And yeah. Sorry. I, I mean, I didn't mean to depress oh, no, everybody. No. Let's get back to the depression of relationships <laughs> and love. <now. laughs> we don't worry. We will be talking about the more, the other serious subject even more, too. But. You know, he he starts reminiscing. We get that 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 dissolve uh, that ripple dissolve into Paris. We see through mostly pure cinema their romance blossom. Mm-hmm. Apart from those wonderful lines about who are you really and what were you before? What did you do and uh, who well, did you meet? Huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, we said, we no, said questions. no questions. Here's looking. Here's looking at you, kid. Lovely line. Lovely line. We get more moments of them. There's a shot in the uh, c- club where they're dancing with that disco ball. Um, or the re- it's a reflect. It's a light reflector, but yeah. we're gonna call it a disco ball because that's how we know it. Because some people in the '70s decided to make a term for it. <laughs> and um, and um, uh, th- there's a moment where the lighting changes as the lighting gets darker on them. They become more intimate. That's the moment they fall in love. Yeah, and they they kind of they kind of do that in later shots as well they just kind of show them in a little bit of darkness just showing intimacy yep in love in love purely in love and and then we get more shots of their love and also we learn a bit about Elsa's history slightly yeah uh and we little learn a little bit more about rick and the fact that he's very much aroused about who was probably deported from america i don't know what the fuck he did (laughs) (laughs) but clearly it was enough where he's like i gotta i gotta get to paris sam you're you're just as responsible as i am for all those murders (laughs) so get in the car (laughs) we're going to the boat I do want a movie of their adventures before going to yeah, Paris. Yeah. God That'd damn it, great. That'd be wonderful. Sa- Rick and Sam, <laughs> like move over Rick and Morty, make way for Rick and Sam. <laughs> um, but uh, and then and then as they're having their relationship blossom, uh oh, Germany invades Poland and then invades France, and then the, the German in, uh, occupation starts beginning. They hear that the Germans will be there like within days. Uh, they have one last drink at La Bella Roar. As we push in on Elsa, we see that something's not right. It's because we're going to find out later that she's been... Um, Wasn't it she thought Victor was dead and that's why she was with she thought Victor, Rick and then she yeah, found that's out why she, he was alive? Yes, exactly. But we as the audience don't know that just yet. All we know is is that she's, dis, she's distant um, Rick's going to be like, nah, get drunk before we get away from these <laughs> fucking goose stepping weirdos. <laughs> like, and and um, there's this beautiful moment, obviously, with you know, like, a, uh, uh, you know, it's it, she's she's it's a crazy world. Anything could happen if 
if you were wherever they put you and wherever they put me, I want you to know that I, and then they kiss and, you know, and actually as they're right before that, as they're, you know, embracing the cannons are going off and she says, is that cannon fire or is my heart pounding? Um, it's beautiful. It's, it's moving. Um, and you know, she, she says the line, kiss me, kiss me if it were the last time. And they go in for that huge kiss. She knocks over a glass, um, which did, which, you know, it's a beautiful way to end that shot. Mm -hmm. Um, and meanwhile, Sam's drinking at the piano going like, yeah, this ought to take the sting out of being occupied. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get fucked up. (laughs) Um, and then we cut to the train station. They're about to, they're, she, Rick is waiting for Ilsa. Ilsa's not there. Sam rushes over and goes like, where is she? Where I don't know, but this letter arrived. Sam hands a letter over to Rick. This is a beautiful example of a letter being read on screen because Michael Curtiz has raindrops falling on it to make it dissolve. As if as if or it was dis- also like ink- teardrops as well. Exactly, to emulate those teardrops and to emulate just the... That, to, to get that message across, like, I cannot come with you. Please understand that I love you, but I cannot go with you. Rick gets on the train. The, the the journey of his disillusionment with romance has begun as he crumples up that paper and tosses it onto the ground as the train goes off. Uh, and then we are brought back to Rick's cafe where he has had all the drinks. And, <laughs> uh, and then Ilsa walks in. She is also, again, she's lit kind of suspiciously. She's got a bit of shadow going on. But she also has a luminosity around her, as we discussed. So she's still kind of very much. It's almost like it's an angel with a dark side coming into his life once again. And I think they I think I think the lighting for Rick and Ilsa is very similar because it's like they both don't know what they're what they're is in store for them in the future. You know what I mean? Like they don't know which path they're going to take yet. Are they going to take you know, a moral path or are they going to be a little more selfish with themselves? And yes. I think that's why they're in light and shadow. Yeah. It, it, we are, we are establishing up front that both of them have a history. If we, if Ilsa was all good and pure, she would be as brightly lit as Victor is, you know, like sh- that's right. Spotlight of vaudeville shining on him at that point. This, they have, they have dimension and they have dilemma and, you know, she tries to explain why she's why she's here and that she did not expect to see Rick in Casablanca. This was not planned. This is not like, look, I planned this to torture you further. Like, <laughs> you know, like, like, and Rick's not buying it. And you know, and she she tries to go into a story of 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 what happened, um, and she kind of tells it uh, encoded about you know she met, she looked up to Victor. And she fell in love with him, and Rick goes like, "Yeah, that's beautiful. I had a story. I heard a story <laughs> once. It started off with a tinny piano and a, <laughs> and a guy with a comical look on his face, <laughs> and he's just, you know, like he, I love his line goes like, well, I guess neither one of our stories is uh, is very funny. <laughs> Tell me, who was it you left me for? Was it was it Laszlo, or were there others in between, or aren't you the kind, kind that tells. tells the douchiest thing you could say at this moment while drunk? Like, yeah. Yeah, guys, don't talk to women while you're drunk. It's stupid. Um, but so she gets off in a huff and leaves, and he's left alone again to drink. And we cut to the next day. Laszlo goes in to try to basically uh, he he is brought into que- brought in for a meeting by Reno because Reno wants to ask him some questions and within that meeting it is learned that there is no way in hell that uh Reno or 
uh, Strasser is going to let Laszlo leave Casablanca. And the only way that Casa, uh, that you can leave Casablanca is with an exit visa or letters of transit. Um, and before they leave, they are they are informed that Senor Ugati is dead. And they <laughs> Reno says, I'm making out the report now. We can't decide if he died, uh, if he died, uh, if he died under torture or simply trying to escape. So they are openly admitting to Laszlo that like we murdered this fucker. Yeah. And now we've got to fudge this report. Yeah. Um, you know, talk about talk about talk about relevant police corruption. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, and uh, but also, you know, you know, Raynaud is a little bit less demanding about them staying. He goes like, "Let us say it is my request that you stay here." Like, you know, like he's playing that diplomat in between opportunist, you know, game that yeah. he plays. And so, it's almost as if. Uh, what Elsa did the night before in pissing off Rick is not going to help her out because they then go to the the Blue Parrot Ferrari's joint to get a visa from uh Ferrari and he's like, well, I cannot help you. I'm 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 too lazy and fat. <laughs> no, he just can't get. It. He, I, I, he I think Laszlo Laszlo is too high profile for really anyone yeah, to help. Him. It would be easier for uh, Ferrari to get somebody low-level refugee out. Somebody like uh, Anina could get out, but um, but with Laszlo, it's no go. Like too many people are watching him, um, and but he does. <laughs> this is a beautiful line. He goes like, uh, it, "I might try to bring up to you one last point. Why I should bring this up to you, I don't know, because it does not." could not possibly benefit me. <laughs> and he basically proceeds to say like, well, you didn't hear it from me, but I'm pretty sure Ugati left those papers with Mr. Rick. <laughs> and that's when the bulb goes off in Ilsa's head. Oh shit. Um, before that though, by the way, they meet in the market. Rick and Ilsa meet up in the market. Rick tries to apologize um, while this person is trying to sell <laughs> <laughs> sell a fabric to Ilsa and he keeps going like ah for friends of Rick's we have a discount 100 francs did I for yeah. special friends of Rick's 50 franc and like he's just <laughs> yeah. going like please just take my fucking cloth <laughs> like <laughs> and I have kids to feed <laughs> what they don't like cloth <laughs> and there's the Batman reference in there today <laughs> um, but yeah and that's when she said like no you see Victor Lazlo was my husband and always was, even when I met you in, in Paris. And then they get this revelation about Rick with the papers, and Elsa's like, well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so now they're going to have to deal with this rowdy tow. And it goes back to Rick's cafe in the middle of the night. Um, uh, the German army is rambunctiously roused abouting in Rick's cafe. Um Yvonne has turned over to the enemy because she's clearly going on a date with one of the German soldiers, asks Sasha for drinks starting from here and ending to here. Um, <laughs> so, and Sasha rolls his eyes as he does this. Um, and uh, Rick and Ilsa come into the bar. Ilsa and Victor come into the bar as well. And um, they try to get it. They get a table far away from Victor Laszlo as possible. Rick's rubs in as time goes by into Ilsa's face one last time here. <laughs> like uh, she he says, uh, I'll have Sam play as time goes by. I hear that's your favorite tune. <laughs> like, and he whispers over to Sam to play the tune. 
and Sam looks over and goes like, God damn it. Fucking fine. We were we were over this. God damn it. Boat and drunk. Much better option right now. <laughs> and but he plays a fast version of as time goes by. Uh and uh there there is a meeting that goes on between Mr. Victor and Mr. Rick about the letters of transit. And within it, um, Victor Laszlo brings up a very, very important part of where Rick's character has to make choices about fighting for the right side. He knows Rick's record as well. And so he calls into him. Why are you not fighting for this? And for Rick at this point, he has lost a lot of his sense of right and wrong after Ilsa left him at the train station. So he has become comfortable with the idea of not giving a shit who wins. He has he has ceased to take a side. Yeah. And what's more, his uh his reluctance to or his his um refusal to hand over the letters basically like for any price period has to do with he is still embittered by Ilsa, he is playing a game here. Rick is a Rick is a hero who sacrifices a lot in this movie, but he does toe that line of likability mm-hmm. because of him withholding these papers, um, which is again this anti-hero that we talk about that he establishes that he's able to do in um, a film like uh, in a film like The Maltese Falcon. That's where the anti-hero comes back. Yes, this is where we start seeing that anti-heroism. It's an anti-heroism that. You know, not to bring it back to Star Wars, but that we get a lot of that in Han Solo. The Han Solo is very much a Rick Blaine kind oh, of character. Oh, obvious ref, um, uh, obvious influence. Yes, obvious influence. Yes, yes, I, I like classic yeah. movies too. <laughs> I I like them too. Stephen and Marty aren't the only ones who can like them. <laughs> but uh, anyway, they he goes like, oh, you know, I won't give them to you for any price. You could offer me a million francs, and it's, the answer would still be no. Ask your wife. What I suggest you ask your wife, and. They go back down into the into the uh, cafe and the Germans are getting all fucking rowdy and Victor's kind of lost it. And so but he does it internally because Paul Henry does a calming (laughs) and he goes up to the band and he goes, play La Marseille's play it. And the band looks over to Rick and Rick's like, you got it. He's he's like, oh, I want to see this shit. I'm 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 eating popcorn (laughs) in the back right here while I watch this fight go on. And this this is a this is a powerful scene. It's one of the most triumphant things you'll ever see in a movie. Because all the extras were actual refugees. Like Michael Curtiz was like he hired refugees for the extras. So there's. There's lines that said that like people were crying while they were saying this and the tears were real because everyone felt that yep. real emotion. Yep, they felt it. They felt it in their bones. Oh my gosh, this is this is what we're dealing with right now. I'm kind of getting choked up thinking about it myself right now cuz like it these these guys had to leave their home because of some fucking asshole. Yeah. Who hated people for no reason and the the idea that that their way of expressing their anguish comes from this moment in cinema is very very profound yeah um you see Yvonne get into it you see she clearly clearly she's clearly she's going away from the Germans she, after and, this song and she, and she has you know, a little she has a kind of a little character arc in this too where she's like 
you know, she yeah. gets with the German to kind of make Rick jealous. And then she, like in this scene, she realizes like, no, it's just, you know, this is how I really feel, you know, country before country, country before Dick, yeah. you know, like that's the, you know, that's the bottom. Uh, I wish, line I wish she, that wasn't so vulgar, it, but yeah. <laughs> I, I, well, I mean, I mean, you know, this is a vulgar podcast. I've told people we need to be entertaining as much as possible. I'm also trying to make myself laugh because I don't want to keep right. crying about fucking thinking about yeah. this scene. Um, but, but it is, it, and then it, it, it inspires everybody and it scares the shit out of Strauss here. He goes, well, <laughs> because he, he points out to Raynaud, like if he can inspire this many people in a cafe, what's to say he's going to do with the entire community at Casablanca. And he wants R- Louis to close down the cafe and Louis's like, but, but everything's going on. Ever, just fine. Everyone's Why having such a good time. And, time and he's just like find a reason and <laughs> louis blows that whistle and he's like everybody leave this cafe is closed effective immediately and uh rick comes up to louis and he goes you motherfucker you can't you how can you close me on what grounds i'm shocked shocked to find that gambling is going on in here you're winning sir oh thank you very much <laughs> everybody out at once <laughs> i fucking love louis i love louis because he is he gets some of the best lines in this movie, and we're going to talk about his transfer uh, his, or his transition here in a little bit. But God damn it, that is a beautiful moment. I love that. I'm shocked, shocked. Like, yeah, it's Claude Rains was such an amazing actor. He does not get enough talk or attention outside of classic film circles or film circles in general. The Invisible Man, notorious. Yeah, uh, fucking Mr. Smith goes to Washington. This guy did absolutely no wrong. In his career, he was very much the best supporting player Hollywood ever had. Yes, I would argue, like the best supporting player Hollywood ever had. Uh, the fact that he never won an Oscar for that, and especially for this movie, is my biggest "fuck you" Academy statement that I can make. <laughs> um, but anyway, I will calm down. I will calm <laughs> down because uh, uh, they, uh, the the bar is closed. Um, Rick says that he is go. Oh wait! Oh my gosh! Before all this, we forgot about Anina. We forgot about Anina, because um, prior to everything going on there, we see that Rick has a heart, because Anina, the Bulgarian refugee, oh, goes yeah. up and asks if will will Captain Reno keep his word if uh he were to offer an exit visa in exchange for stuff and. Rick Rick hears this and he goes like, well, yes, Louis is going to keep his word. And he feels he feels sick in the stomach about it. Like you can tell, like it, it unnerves him. Yeah. And so he encourages them to keep their luck at the table, um, like to keep trying there. And he goes and he basically fixes the it fixes the game of roulette. Um, and uh, but through a through a bet. Have you have you tried 22? Tried 22. Marco de keeps hitting. I I don't know how to speak the language, but God damn it, I know how it sounds right now in this moment because that 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 it's an earworm stuck in my head. There, there's a and, there's a a story about this the um, the censor so that that um the scene where the Bulgarian woman the young the young woman goes to Rick and is basically, but I I think I think in the original script it was more um explicit where she's saying like oh Renault said that i had to sleep with him in order for mm-hmm. 
in order for him to consider me and my husband for exit visas. You know what I mean? So she basically tells him, yeah. like, I did this without my husband's knowledge, yeah. you know. Yeah. And yeah. And and, and so they, and but they had, to re, they had to rewrite the dialogue so that it was clean and it would it would pass the censor. Which I can imagine this wonderful segment in my head of Julius Epstein and uh, Philip Epstein going in and handing the script in and how was going. What the fuck is this? Well, line? but but everyone. <laughs> but I mean, it's you it's, think we could get through this? <laughs> it's written. In, it's written in such a way that everyone knows exactly what they're talking about anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. But that original line, they'd be like, what the fuck is this? You can't just say sleep with them. What do you, we're, we're in 1942 Hollywood. What do you think is going on? Sorry, can't talk. We got to go for Why We Fight series. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> God, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, but no, it, yeah. And it is, it's implied without needing, we don't need to be explained it. We know. Yeah. We know. We know because there's scenes of Louis talking about being told that there's a person to see somebody about a visa problem and he says show her in yeah and he, and he starts he adjusts his spiffing tie. himself yeah. up just uh-huh. his tie he pops out his cheap vici wine and he's all fucking sick, you know? <laughs> and but so anyway so they he rigs it so they win and he goes um cash it in and don't come back and you know louie louie in so many words says god Damn you! Yeah. <laughs> like, like you, you ruined my side hustle. You, you ruined, you, you ruined my little love affair. Yeah, yeah, you ruined my little love affair, and um, uh, but he also implies he's just like you know I, you know I, there are plenty more where that came from, and uh, which is a very sad statement to make, um, but so we'll jump back ahead. The bar closes. Uh, Rick's going to pay the salaries of everybody, uh, while they're on leave, um, and, uh. Uh, Carl, the waiter, is says he's going to go to the meeting. He's like, "Don't tell me where you're going." <laughs> yeah, th- this What's is the also first a rule scene... of Fight Club: don't talk about Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> all, this scene is also a little preview to Rick's um, moral good side because he says, "You know, how long can we afford to stay closed?" And Carl says, two to three weeks." And 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 um, Rick says, "We'll keep everybody on full salary." Yep, he's like, "Best you, Mister Rick." Yeah. And the um and within this moment, um, we have um uh we before before the meeting starts, Victor is off to go to the meeting, and he and Elsa have a a bit of a confession time for both of them, really, because like obviously, like they're not they, nobody's saying anything too explicit, like or revealing anything definite, but like. You know, Elsa goes like if if um you know like you understand where I what how I was where I was when we thought you were dead and Victor kind of replies among the lines of like look I you know some things we times we do things to survive during war and I'd hope you'd understand that of me as well yeah. so without saying it to each other they both are aware that they've both committed infidelity on each other whether through needs of survival or the thought of somebody being dead. Yeah. Um, and they are both under the understanding that this is a messed up situation that they both found themselves in. Yeah. Um, Victor goes off to the meeting and Ilsa is very much like, I have to get the papers. Like I, I can't not get these papers. So she basically breaks into Rick's office and uh, pleads with him, pleads with him. Rick's like no fucking way. I'm not I doing mean, it. They, they, like, they basically, then, yeah, they, they, they admit to each other that they still have feelings for each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. At one point, they, yeah. they cut to a shot 
of that phallic airport tower. And then the, the next the next shot is Rick smoking. So it's like, well, they could have, you know, that, I mean, that's loud and yeah. clear for everybody. You know what I mean? Like they still have feelings yeah, for it, her. So they slept together. And this is all because Ilse is just trying to get those exit visas. Yeah. And uh, before that, though, her desperation leads to the point where he pulls a gun on. Oh, him. that's right. Or she yeah. pulls a gun on mm-hmm. him. And he's like, I try. All right. I tried to stay away. I tried to I tried to I, I tried to keep it, keep you out of my life. And he and Bogart has a great line where he, you know, he accepts the fact that this is how far she's willing to go. And he says, go ahead and shoot. You'll be doing me a favor. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when she kind of breaks down. And that's when they both really like openly express that they have feelings for each other. Bogart through not really saying a word, but Ilsa saying every word. Yeah. And. Again, we you said we get that phallic shot and um, <laughs> guest directed by Alfred Hitchcock, I guess, because you know <laughs> we were talking about to catch a thief last time and all the phallic imagery there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Bogart, I want you and Bergman to be over here. I haven't worked with you, Bergman, but don't worry, we're gonna work together eventually. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, and um, uh, and she basically unloads the entire history of what happened, clarifies for Bogart what happened. Victor was thought to be dead through the news of the underground. She found out he was alive and that's why she had to go to him that she couldn't go to go with Rick um, to flee Paris with him. Um, They come to the agreement that the papers need to be given to Laszlo under the condition that Rick says out loud is that uh, only except for one thing, he won't have you. And it's implicated that, you know, Ilsa will stay. And she goes, I can't fight it any longer. I left you once. I'm never going to do it again. Yeah. Um, and you have, I don't know what's right any longer. You have to think of both of us for all of us. And this is my, one of my favorite moments in the romance scene, because this is the moment where Bogart for a split second, he's going to get the woman he wants and he can get Victor out of his hair and feasibly appease Reno or whatever and get his club back open. Once she says, you have to think for both of us, for all of us, they go in for a hug and Bogart's on screen and he says, all right, I will. Yeah. That's the moment he decides that no, what what we know is the famous ending is going to happen here. Not my dream or not my, not my wishes. Yeah. The right thing's going to happen. That's the moment he decides. That's the moment because it's, that's the moment when he gives that look and says, all right, Let's kick some Nazi ass. <laughs> Go team kicking Nazi ass. And, um, and so the, in a deleted scene in this film, by the way, we do have uh, Bogart arranging Victor to get out of uh, the prison. You see him at the prison visiting Victor. Uh, the scene itself, as it exists, no longer has the dialogue track, but you can see the film version of it in the deleted scenes of the film itself. Um, but uh, this is where we get... Um, the uh this is also where because uh, victor was arrested after the meeting is broke up they get him out of the prison uh and lou before be, for getting rick uh, for getting victor out of prison rick goes to louie and basically goes like look let him go and then you can get him on actual charges and not these trumped up charges <laughs> and and he basically reveals his end of what the plot is, which is like get Victor arrested and then me and Ilza will fly off to America. And, you know, he's like, oh, Ricky, I'm proud of you for interfering <laughs> in a relationship. <laughs> oh, yeah, I taught you yeah. well. I taught you well. And <laughs> he's going he's like, Rick, I'm going to miss <laughs> you. Like and 
they get to the club to set up this sting, quote unquote. Uh, Ilsa and Victor arrive. Uh, 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 Sam, uh, Rick grabs the papers and hands the papers over to uh, Vic, uh, Victor, and he says they were in the piano the whole time. Now, before we leave the piano, let's address what happens to Sam and Rick because Rick has sold Rick's cafe to Ferrari to Senor Ferrari, and Ferrari goes, "I fucking told you it was going to happen, <laughs> oh boy. I, I'm just, I'm, I, you know, my, me and my ch- cousin Jake Gutman, we are both very, very <laughs> smart individuals, as you can tell." Um, and, uh, but he's, and he, you know, when he says Sam goes with the bargain, I think at this point, like Rick is prepared to leave everything behind again. He does not want to put Sam at any risk. So he basically says like, well, you know, if you, if you buy this club, you either take Sam or you don't take the club period. And, um, and so, you know, and he, and he says a beautiful line about like Rick's wouldn't be Rick's without Sam. And that is the absolute truth. Rick's would not be Rick's without Sam. Um, now, I this is the question I have is, is like he said he doesn't buy and sell human beings did he <laughs> I want a scene where he consults with Tooley Wilson on this <laughs> but <laughs> I, I'll never get it so I just have to go off of the good faith of what's been set up before <laughs> like going like I mean sure boss whatever I thought the drunk boat idea was way better but sure we'll go with your plan <laughs> I, I, I like it here anyway it's nice nice climate you know good good surroundings beautiful women um, uh, but anyway, um, so he gives him over the papers and then Renault comes out and goes, uh, Victor Laszlo, you're under arrest for the murder of the Jew for, uh, aid to the murder of the two German couriers. And he goes like, well, you know, clearly Rick set you up cause there's no way in hell that he would ever, uh, yeah, <laughs> not so fast. Louis, <laughs> he has a gun on Louis. He's going to double cross everybody he wants. <laughs> and he, he gets them. He he tells them to make a call over to the airport to let him know who is arriving. And remember, this gun is pointed your uh, straight pointed at, at your, at your heart. heart. That is my least vulnerable spot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Even in the middle, this is Julius. This is the Epstein's at their finest because yeah. Even in the midst of pure tension, they are throwing one line oh, yeah. like it's a fucking Henny Youngman show. Yeah, their, like, <laughs> their dialogue is great. Oh, God. Their dialogue is beautiful. <laughs> and um, we dissolve over to the airport after the call has been made. But the call is made not to the airport, but to Major Strasser. Yeah. And uh, basically, Reynaud's giving the tip off to, Re- uh, to Strasser. They get over to the airport. They arrive at the airport. They dock at they park at the airport. You see how I'm just kind of delaying the the biggest scene in the movie <laughs> yeah. here with the airport talk. Fun fact though, the shot of the the far shot um, from the hangar looking out to the airstrip. Um, it's a very well known fact. Um, little people actors were used as the mechanics for the airplane in the far background because if they had used full size people. They would have uh, it would have looked ridiculous because of the cardboard planes. So they used yes. little people to. Um, uh, create the perspective and they go to the, uh, uh, the airport. Um, he has Louis fill out the paper. Um, and the names are for Vic- Mr. And Mrs. Victor Laszlo. Yep. Guys, Shocker. Rick's not going on the plane with Ilsa. Yep. yep. He's not, Ilsa's not staying. Ilsa's getting on that plane. I'm not going to deliver the entire speech because that would be pointless. Instead, I'm going to play it for you right now. Oh. 
don't mind, you fill in the names. That'll make it even more official. You think of everything, don't you? And the names are Mr. and Mrs. Victor Laszlo. But why my name, Richard? Because you're getting on that plane. I don't understand. What about you? I'm staying here with him until the plane gets safely away. No, Richard, no. What has happened to you? Last night Last we said... Last night we said a great many things. You said I was to do the thinking for both of us. Well, I've done a lot of it since then. It all adds up to one thing. You're getting on that plane with Victor where you belong. But, Richard, no, I... Now, I... you've got to listen to me. Do you have any idea what you'd have to look forward to if you stayed here? Nine chances out of ten, we'd both wind up at a concentration camp. Isn't that true, Louis? I'm afraid, Major Strauss, I would insist. You're saying this only to make me go. I'm saying it because it's true. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Yeah. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. But what about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we, we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. When I said I would never leave you. And you never will. But I've got a job to do, too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Ilza, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Now, now. He's looking at you, kid. I... I think I think Victor's line is the best. I, in my opinion, I think it's the. You know, they, they have you have Bogey's like little speech, but Victor's line to Bogey, you know, like now I know our side will win. You know what I mean? Welcome back. Welcome to the back fight. to the fight. This time I know our side will win. Yeah, I I think that's God damn it. I, I I think that that line is overshadowed a lot. Yeah, it is, and it's very much it's the completion, pretty much the completion of Rick's character. Yeah. He still has to do one more thing for me, um, but <laughs> f- but first things first, you know, get get this. The, the, we're talking about this noble sacrifice. This this the the sacrifice of the hero. He doesn't get the girl at the end. He does what's right. It's one of the reasons why I love this movie as a romantic plot is because it is about making the right choice. Like if you love someone, let them go. Yeah. That it's a breakup movie. Casablanca is a breakup movie in a real in a lot of yeah. ways. It's a breakup. I mean, movie. if if um and, it, and if it, the if the romantic ending had gone through, if like Rick had gone off with Elsa, it, we wouldn't be talking about the movie. You know what I mean? Like it, it would have been something else. Yeah. Yeah. No. Everybody. Uh, Howard Koch says it in the interview. If we had done. The end, the romantic ending, it would have been just another picture. Yeah. We wouldn't be sitting here talking yeah. about this. So it's clear that obviously we're dealing with the, like one of those epic endings in regards to like how, like how if how this film works has to do with that ending because it completes a lot of arcs in the best way you would be able to complete. Them. Yeah. Um, and he even and he even calls back here's looking at you kid to know like look I still love you but this is the right thing to do. Yeah. Like he tells he tells her I know that I would be very happy with you but we all know that we would not be happy with each other right now. Right. <laughs> like yeah. and the fact that like every, there would be sadness within this. Um this scene was written on the fly. And the Epstein, uh, Julius J. Epstein has a beautiful story in it where he talks about it's him and his brother Phil have finally come back from Why We Fight. They're sitting down. They're trying to figure out this ending. And at one point, one of them says, round up the usual suspects. And that's how they knew they had the ending, yes. which is the one we have today. And the reason why 
round up the usual suspects? Well, it doesn't have so much to do with Rick and Elsa. It has to do with one Captain Louis Renault, Prefect of Police. Uh, but Lu Elsa and Rick, uh, Elsa and Victor get on the plane, not Elsa and Rick. <laughs> <laughs> See, I fucked up the yeah. ending. That's why I didn't make Casablanca, right. guys. Also, I wasn't alive. <laughs> um, but Victor and Elsa get on the plane. <laughs> the plane takes off. And Louis says, Ricky, you're not only a sentimentalist, but you've become a patriot. <laughs> like, yeah. And uh, the uh, and he goes, I, I suppose you realize this is not going to go go good for either of us. And he goes, wait till that plane leaves the ground, Louis. The plane leaves the ground. Major Strasser arrives and goes like, wh who is, what is it? What, what did you the, want? What, Victor yeah, Laszlo is yeah, on that what plane. Is the, what was the purpose of that phone call? Yeah, what was that meaning at that phone call? Victor Laszlo is on that plane. Well, why is it? Why don't you, what, is he, what are you doing? Why don't you stop him? Ask Mr. Rick. And Major Strasser goes over to the phone and uh, 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 Rick goes like, get away from that phone. Uh, get, and he's going to keep going at the phone. He goes, I was willing to shoot Captain Reno and I'm willing to shoot you. And he keeps going to call the radio tower. He goes, put it down. And then, bam! Nazi death. Yes. Hooray! Yes. And he beats he beats Major Strasser on the draw because Major Strasser draws a gun as well. Yep. And I believe yes, he gets exactly. a shot off as well and misses Rick. He he gets a shot. He misses Rick because Nazis aren't good shots. Much like stormtroopers, Nazis are not good yeah. shots. If if you um, wa if you watch the trailer, the original trailer for Casablanca. They they ruin the ending and they add in an extra line like they show Ricky shoot Major Strausser, but he also goes, I'm w I was willing to shoot Captain Reno. I'm willing to shoot you. And then he, and then they add in. All right, mister, you asked for it. Major. They said, all right, Major. Yeah, you that's asked right. For all it. right, Major, that, you asked for it. But they do kind of cut away before you see uh, Strausser dying. Yeah. So like you could like pull off that. The trailer for this film is not my favorite trailer in the world. Oh, but it's, it doesn't I, th I think it's um, a wonderful trailer. It, it's 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 like the the large text and the music. Oh yeah, no, that old stuff is wonderful. I'm talking about like that showing the ending that far oh, yeah, in advance, yeah, like that, like yeah. that. Now, like I said though, it covers itself because it covers that up, but it, it's not. It, it, you know, I there are other trailers from the era that I like more, even though this movie is one of my top five favorite films of all time. I, I can't tell you. Like <laughs> it's like Jackie Brown. I love the movie. Like it's my favorite. It's my number one. But the trailer for <laughs> Jackie Brown kind of annoys me because it, <laughs> it has to do with the Christmas season, and I'm like. And I oh. love Don Lon Fontaine's announcement in it, but I'm also like, ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is how you keep Quentin Tarantino's new movie a secret. Right, right. That's right. That's how you keep it a secret. <laughs> <laughs> and um, But he shoots Major Strasser. The other officials backing up Major Strasser finally arrived. They're late. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they were they're, way they're behind. They're French police. Yep, the French police. And uh, Louis says Major Strasser has been shot. He looks at Rick. And then he looks at the French police and he goes, "Round up the usual suspects." There, there was um, French police. Dis I, I read I, disband. Yeah, I, I read a little um, snippet about that particular little shot where they brought in—I forgot who it was. They brought somebody in. It wasn't the director. I think it was one of the writers, but they brought him into the editing room and they said, "Your ending doesn't work because the the way the editors originally did it was." Um, there's not that look between Reno and Rick. They just said major Strausser has been shot round up the usual suspects. 
and they just they they just cut through it like really quickly and it doesn't work and they said well you have to add a shot of Renault looking at Rick and Rick looking at Renault and then you know you you have to show that emotional you know connection between the two characters and then Renault says round yeah. up the usual suspects and it's the right call of that editor to be like, hold the fuck up, you know, like you, yeah. You, and that's what a good editor is for: is to be like, nah, this doesn't work. Right. Like we and we've worked with editors before yeah. where they'll tell us point blank if something's working or not working. Yeah. And like, and actually, I I just had that experience on the last short film I did was, you know, like we we had a particular angle on the ending shot and. He he um I didn't communicate it to him, but he already kind of knew it point blank. Like he picked another angle and it worked way better for the yeah. movie. So like that's an example of what an editor can do to bring to that um that proceedings where they they, they are intuitively looking at the picture not just from a script form, but also what is at their disposal and they're able to give like a more objective point of view yeah. on it. Um and oh, right, unless the director's editing it, like if it's Kevin Smith doing it, he's gonna do what he's gonna do. But yeah, I that was like, side tangent. Kevin Smith's one of the better editors that you'll find within the last 20 years because he is really good at it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but anyway, back to Casablanca, not uh, Jane and Silent Bob go to Casablanca. <laughs> but I want that now. God damn it. <laughs> I told him, I, I said reboot was enough, but I was lying. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so yeah, um, you know, um, Rick, you know, and Rick looks at his friend and goes, buddy, buddy. <laughs> like, <laughs> You're not a douche anymore. Right. And to seal off the fact that Captain Raynaud is no longer a Nazi collaborating douchebag, he throws that trashy ass wine in the garbage. The, Woo! The, the wine for, or the the it. Vichy wine? Yeah, yeah. The, or was it was it water? The Vichy or was wine. It, wine? Oh, it was okay. wine. <laughs> it was it was Vichy wine. Um. Uh, I mean, unless it's water. If it's water, I don't care. I'm going at Vichy. <laughs> whatever. It's Vichy garbage it's that he Vichy throws in the fucking trash. And it's trash. Yes, it's trash because it's collaborator trash. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about Louis before the final line here. So Louis has had to go through a redemptive arc of his own, redeeming himself from assholery. And um, or like a better term for it, like collaboration, you know, the schemes that he pulls. He, too, is finally able to let go of the grasp of the Nazis on him. Yes. And. But he does it in a way that suggests that he feels he was never wrong to do what he did. Almost like somebody who goes like, I fooled you this whole time. <laughs> like, he he has this air about him of like, I'm never going to say it up front. Yeah. I'm going to do it by first throwing, obviously, the, the bottle in. But also the fact that I say round up the Israel suspects. I'm tired of these Nazis too, Rick. I really am. I'm sick of them running my damn life. I'm sick of them running my country. He has this change of heart that makes it. This is why I say when he doesn't get the Oscar for best supporting actor in 1942, it is a crime because he has this amazing arc that supports the entire cast. Yes. Literally up to the last scene in the movie. It's why his name belongs on a marquee and not at the bottom text. It's why it's one of those like one one of the like I I had that revelation in film school like sitting in that fucking screening room with uh, one of the classes I I guess it was probably one of the film theory classes but I was yeah. like thinking about Claude Rains looking at his filmography going like this is one of the best supporting actors in the world and Casablanca is his crowning achievement yeah. in that role in that realm like it I mean L L Lawrence Olivier was one of his students 
Yep. <laughs> you know, it's just like. But you can crap. imagine the the guy who had to hide his Cockney accent up the wazoo <laughs> teaching Lawrence Olivier. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> you gotta you gotta know like Reigns Reigns knows how to rein him in if you if you That's get right. my drift. Like, he he he's a master at this. Like, and and what I said is true. That was a he hid his Cockney accent up the. He he had a strong Cockney accent. He had to overcome it a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um. But um, uh, and for more, I'm going to talk about Claude Rains a shit ton on this show. I might even do a series on him at some point. I don't know, like I, that. It would be an ambitious task, but he, I think he deserves mm-hmm. it. Um, but anyway, we get the final moment of the film. It might be good for you to disappear from Casablanca for a while. There's a free French garrison over in Brazzaville. I could be endued to arrange a pa- arrange a passage by letters of transit. I could use a trip. Yeah, doesn't make any difference about our bet. You still owe me ten thousand francs. And that ten thousand francs should pay our expenses. Right. <laughs> our expenses. Mm-hmm. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Yeah. So it's the I I will maintain my, probably one of the reasons I love Casablanca is that final scene. It's not the scene of Rick letting Elsa go. It's that scene, right? For me, it is one of the most beautiful lines of dialogue ever assembled into one piece of cinema that has ever existed. We swell up with La Marseillaise, and the movie ends. That's right. A Warner Brothers picture, Jack L. Warner producer, um, even though, obviously, he just did nothing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, this film, obviously, we've gushed about it. We've talked about it. When we talk about this film, Willix, does it still hold up all these years later? I think I know the answer. I, I mean, it does for me, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I've I've actually got some more stuff that I want to talk about if that's okay. Yes, okay. absolutely. All right. Let's get so there. um you, you just mentioned um Jack Jack Warner. This is just a little story that I read about when Casablanca won best picture. Um I guess Jack Yep. Yeah. So Jack Warner kind of went up on stage and accepted the Oscar ahead of Hal Wallace. Well, bolted yeah, onto the stage and, just dr- sprinted over there like an olympic yeah, runner and, and that was the final straw right. for him yeah he left the studio shortly after that um yeah that was the final mm-hmm. straw for him secret history of hollywood delves into that a bit too but also the book uh will always have casablanca by noah eisenberg talks talks much more about it too like this was a a travesty that hal wallace who really curated the project along with curtis to what it becomes because you have to keep in mind, this is just one of... Julius Epstein says it in that documentary. Casablanca was just another movie. One out of, like, they were making a picture yeah. a week, 50 pictures a year. This was just one of mm-hmm. the 50. And for Hal Wallace to have that achievement in The Crown and for Jack Warner to claim it, it's like Hal B. Wallace was the producer listed. He's the one who yeah. gets it. Jack is the executive mm-hmm. in charge. Jack Warner was a bit of a son of a bitch, if not completely yeah. a son of a bitch. Wonderful producer, uh, wonderful studio chief that, in terms of his making his job work and making classic films, very much a son of a bitch who would end up betraying a lot of his family. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's 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 for a later story, kids. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, no, and uh, yeah, that it's it's a fucking crime. But the movie did win. You know, obviously it won. Three big Oscars, Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. Uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, 
and uh and yeah and i mean what was what what else did you find within your research because i have a couple of things um myself, just too. like little things like um uh director michael curtiz had a very thick hungarian accent and there's a um a story where he was talking to the art director and he said he asked for poodles he's like i want more poodles and the director looked at him or the art director kind of looked at him like, what? And he goes, poodles, get me more poodles. And so the art director went off and literally brought back poodle dogs. But what But what he <laughs> meant was puddles. He wanted more puddles of water. Um, so, and, and I, I also watched in preparation for this, the Curtis, um, the film on Netflix. And that that little story is in the movie, so I don't know how accurate it is, but that is like just one of the stories of legend, you know. Yeah, a lot a lot of the legends of Casablanca, as well documented as they are, many a lot of them have been either disputed or adjusted for truth. Um, but the what's interesting about Casablanca, apart from Citizen Kane, I don't know of any other film from this era that has the documentation behind it that this does. Right. Like in terms of what we know, how much access we have to information. Like I think this is first place. Citizen Kane is second because there's also a lot of like there's missing shit in there, but that's that's for another day. Casablanca though, like document documents cover the production of this film all the way through. A lot of people were still alive where they were able to interview them and get stuff on the record. Um Curtiz was not among them. Curtiz passed away in the 50s. So um, there's not... He didn't get to do one of these bigger interviews, yeah. which really sucks because I would have wanted to see one of those 70s interviews like like what like what Ford and Willie Wellman and William Wyler and Houston got to have where they you have the spotlight on him. He died... Not in the 50s, sorry. He died in 1962. But he actually, he worked himself even further for Warner Brothers, ended up leaving and starting his own production company and then um, uh, kind of passed away after some of the la latter films of his career were not doing so yeah. well. And, you know, it's... Curtiz was a person where the work was his life. Yeah. Like, that was his that was his purpose for being here. And when he couldn't... Do, when, it, when it looked like he couldn't do it anymore, that's when he, that's when he left. Yeah. Um, he left behind a, an immense legacy of films. Um, the Epstein's, as we talked about, continue to write and would go on to uh, great acclaim in other pieces. Co Howard Koch, he's not just remembered for this. He's also remembered for writing the script for the War of the Worlds broadcast that shook That's the right. nation into a panic. <laughs> they called it the panic broadcast <laughs> of Orson Welles. And, um, uh, Koch and, um, but Casey Robinson, he was mainly known for doing a lot of Betty Davis mm -hmm. movies. Um, and he, uh, he was, a he was described by Richard Corliss once as like a master of adaptation and whatnot, but he, um, uh, he would end up, he started early on, he would end up, uh, writing for films. He wrote now Voyager. He wrote for this is the army. He wrote a film that ties into Casablanca called passage to Marseille. Um, and he, his last film would be Scobie Malone, where he was also a producer in 1975. Um, but he still managed to continue to work. His work on Casablanca has been acknowledged. Um, he may, and mainly making his work on MGM and 20th Century Fox. So he must have done a lot of stuff for Warner Brothers off off to the side because Betty Davis um, 
she he worked on the Betty Davis stuff when he was at Warner's, and then he moved to MGM in 20th Century Fox. So Casablanca would have been among the last things he did for yeah. Warner Brothers. Um, and then as far as the cast is concerned, well, Humphrey Bogart, we all know what happened to him. <laughs> <laughs> he became an icon. Yeah. He would go on to work in a lot of films with Mr. John Huston, uh, and uh, he would work up until his uh, untimely death um, from a heart attack in 1957. Yeah. Um, like, well, not from a heart attack, from um, cancer. Sorry, from cancer. God damn it, I'm mixing up my shit all over the place. <laughs> but he would go on to he he would go on to great success with Houston and Howard Hawks as well. And the narrator of that great documentary that we uh, have been referencing this whole time, Lauren Bacall. Fun fact, Mrs. Humphrey Bogart. But you didn't need me to tell you that. You all knew that, <laughs> didn't you? You didn't? It's okay. Well, stay tuned for an episode on To Have and Have Not where I'll talk about that entire fucking relationship <laughs> because that story is insane yeah. and wonderful and it's one of the most romantic Hollywood stories I've ever heard in my life. Um, uh, but yes, he would also you know, obviously go on to pro- start his own production company, Santana Productions, where... Amongst other things, they made the movie Beat the Devil, which if uh, you have, if you haven't seen it, it's a very fun, campy affair. Uh, and uh, would finally win his Oscar for African Queen. He was nominated for Casablanca, did not win, took him a while to win. He would end up win- winning for the Ca- African Queen, which is a wonderful It's a great, yeah, for it's, a, it's good a good movie. movie. Great movie and a wonderful win for him. Um, he would also go on to define another uh, film detective with Philip Marlowe in The Big Sleep. Um, and The Big Sleep influenced pretty much any detective movie you've ever seen in your life. Um, Ingrid Bergman, um, as has been talked about on The Shamley Silhouette, she kept working with Selznick. She ended up working with Hitchcock, um, would end up being exiled from America because of her affair with Rossellini. Uh, that ended up turning into her marriage with Rossellini. And then she would end up uh, coming out of exile and uh, being a strong supporting player in Hollywood films up to her death um, and, and ended up winning an Oscar for Murder on the Orient Express, the um, the non-Kenneth mm-hmm. Branagh version one for all you kids listening out there. Um, and uh, Paul Henry, as we don't uh, talk about him too much, um, he, uh, he, he lived up till 1992 and during that time, in his life, he worked into films all the way up into. TV director. And this is this is something for you and I. His final film role, Exorcist Two: The Heretic, as the Cardinal. Yeah, who remembers the Heretic? Crickets. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, but I hear that it is a, a bonkers, crazy movie. That that that's an understatement, my friend. An understatement. <laughs> <laughs> but, we don't really have room to do it on yesteryear, but so may I may have to start a movie called Batch at Seventy Movies. I don't know, but like that, yeah, that movie deserves a conversation amongst other things. Uh, yeah, but yeah, but he would also direct films. He directed the film Four Men Only, uh, A Woman's Devotion, Live Fast, Die Young, Girls on the Loose, Dead Ringer, and Ballad in Blue. He did a lot of noir. He he ended up finding a good he niche did. in noir. Yeah, um, so. Uh, Henry came off of this just fine. Um, yeah, obviously. he also um, he became a TV director for a lot of things later in his career. He also did several episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I know he did. I know. <laughs> he did. I love Paul. I really do. <laughs> he was I also uh, he was very outspoken in his opposition to McCarthyism. 
and was blacklisted as a communist sympathizer, which was ridiculous. Yep. And what's interesting is that he did still manage to get some work in the 50s, though, regardless. So Mm -hmm. um, it does look like that a lot of the films that he was involved with were not of the highest quality, though. But uh, apart from his directing work is what I'm getting at. Um, Right. But yeah, he actually Bogart had a brush with that because he, Houston, Bacall, Sinatra, and a bunch of other people formed a committee that protested this um, uh, the McCarthyism movement, and word got over to the studio, and Bogart was basically told to apologize and to denounce the group and communism entirely. And yeah. Bogart, unfortunately, it's not the same thing Kazan did, but it's not great either. Yeah. At yeah. any rate, though, Yes, he, so he ended up, he ended also going, he went back to European films for a little while too. Um, and when he left Warner Brothers, he ended up working, that's how he kind of moves into directing, is getting into stuff like producing films. Um, uh, and then he would pass away um, in 1992 um, after suffering a stroke at the age of 84. Um, and then Claude Rains... We're going to give him a little spotlight here because, as I said, the greatest supporting actor in history uh, would go on to be in such films as Notorious, Lawrence of Arabia, The Greatest Story Ever Told. He would be a four-time nominee for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, never would win, and he was considered one of the screen's greatest character stars. That's all things I've just said. This is the only way you can describe this man is just the greatest. Yeah, um, he. Great. I mean, yeah, he was also in Adventures of Robin Hood. He was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He was the Phantom in the 43 Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, and that's not his in, fault, guys. <laughs> he was. Uh, hear it. <laughs> he was in Lawrence of Arabia. Um, he also was on the Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which I'm sure he was directed by Paul Henry. It's just just crazy. Like, he, you, you want to talk about a guy who turned down roles? He was offered Dr. Gogol and Mad Love, turned that down. Dr. Pretorius and Bride of Thank Frankenstein. <laughs> Frollo or Quasimodo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He was offered Wolf von Frankenstein and Son of Frankenstein, Mr. Doolittle and My Fair Lady, Klaatu in The Day the Earth Stood Still, and among others, and uh, Henry Potter in It's a Wonderful Life. Like, you okay, know. I'm glad there's two names that you mentioned in there, or two roles you mentioned in there that I'm glad he turned down. One is Mr. Potter, because yeah. I can't imagine anybody playing right, Mr. Right. Potter apart from Barrymore. But, but the big one, Dr. Pretorius, it would be very hard for me to tr- pass up the offer to see what Claude Rains would have done with Pretorius. Yeah. But Ernest Thesiger is so fucking good in that movie yeah yeah that's a that's a that's a sophie's choice if there ever was one for stupid matters like this yeah (laughs) um and uh yeah his last film would be as herod the great in the greatest story ever told Uh um (laughs) i like how i I like how in the listing it says it's the main star max van saito plus many cameos (laughs) like (laughs) yeah (laughs) um that's george stevens obviously too um, and um, he would appear on radio a bunch too. Um, he 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 made guest appearances. That's the funny thing is is that um uh the 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 big four of this film and actually Peter Laurie as well um all made appearances on a little radio program 
called the Jack Benny Program. And on this show, if Jack Benny can be mentioned on this uh, podcast, I will bring it up. Um, there are many, actually, uh, connections to Casablanca for Jack in the weirdest ways, one of which, obviously, a lot of these actors were guests on his show. Um, Humphrey Bogart was on more than once. Uh, Bergman is in a very famous sketch uh, on Benny's program, which was a parody of Gaslight, a movie that she was in with Charles Boyer. Um, and that sketch was actually brought into court because MGM claimed that he didn't have the right to make fun of Gaslight. And Jack had to point out in court with his writers, yeah, that's bullshit. This is a parody, you idiots. And <laughs> <laughs> um, and then obvi- and Peter Lorre is a guest many times on his show, the most famous of which is an appearance on where he and Boris Karloff ended up doing this in different episodes of the show where they repeated this sketch. It's basically their version of a noir story called I Stand Condemned, um, uh-huh. where it's basically about Peter Lorre plays a guy who um, g- keeps giving Jack money and then Jack finds out it's counterfeit <laughs> and huh. ends up strangling Peter Lorre in the end. <laughs> like, um, and it's like it's one of those like Jack reads a book and they enter the world. Um, and um, Paul Henry was on the uh, uh, the Burns and Allen show a bunch. Um, Claude Rains is in an interesting episode of the Jack Benny show where uh, he's trying to convince Jack to to uh, to not uh, have him be on the Ford Theater for an adaptation of The Horn Blows at Midnight. Yeah, um, but uh, obviously Jack holds too much sway, so Claude does it. Um, but the biggest connection for Jack Benny, there's two of them. One is, is that he does a very, very, uh, uh, recognized, um, um, parody of Casablanca not too long after its release in popularity where he and Eddie Anderson, Eddie Rochester Anderson play Rick and Sam. Uh, and Eddie Anderson's version of Sam is just as wonderful as, uh, Dooley Wilson's. And obviously it's funnier for the intention of the laughter, um, but a lot of the sketch has to do with making uh, ma- making fun of the fact of how big a hit as time goes by had become. <laughs> um, and it's it's a very funny episode. I recommend you look it up. Uh, okay. But the biggest connection is is that there is a rumor that was spread around by press reports of the era <laughs> that has never been confirmed or denied openly in any way, shape, or form. Um, yeah. But Jack Benny may, may in fact be in the movie Casablanca. Oh, really? And that's where I cue that dramatic gopher music. And we, <laughs> <laughs> they're in the, in the Casablanca press book um, and in some ad, ad uh, newspaper ads. Uh, uh, it's claimed that Jack was on the set and is walking down the street at one point where you could, see, you could kind of see him. Movie critic Roger Ebert says said when asked the question of if Jack Benny in Casablanca, he says, it seems to look like him. <laughs> 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 and when another person on that column confirmed it, he said, well, good. I guess it will uh, 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 be, uh, uh, I-, I guess it will uh, basically make the uh, Jack Benny fan contingency happy. Now, the scene in question where he might have been in the movie has mainly to do with him being in the cafe. And uh, the Jack Benny fan club 
uh, run by Laura Leibowitz, who will end up being a guest on this show for uh, another film. Um, there are thoughts that Anthony Tolan says that he might be a waiter in the background during the big conversation between um, uh, Captain uh, Raynaud and Major Strasser after Rick has left. Um, the other indication might be that he would be at the bar uh, uh, near the near the uh, piano as uh, Sam is playing before Rick hides the letters of transit. Um, and then there's another claim that he is in the opening image of Rick's Cafe American just as the camera is pushing in on uh, Dooley Wilson. Now, I happen to think that this might be the most likely because it does really look like Jack. Um, so there you have it, folks. We did basically a back and to the left on this episode to address the fact that the world's greatest comedian may have, in fact, been in the world's greatest movie. Um, so that's how that may explain also why this movie is on my list. It's probably not the actual <laughs> answer because we'll talk about the actual answer <laughs> at the end. But um, this film has gone on to wide acclaim. It's become part of the lexicon. In the uh, uh, aftermath, there are many attempts to capitalize on the success of Casablanca. A television version is developed in the 50s, and it goes nowhere. Um, they retry to do this in the 80s again with Scatman Crothers as as Sam. Yeah. And I I wish that that had become a bigger series. And also Hector Elizondo as Louis. That's, That's right. something I wanted multiple episodes of that I'll never get. Uh, <laughs> And uh, other attempts to capitalize. There's novels that are written. The one of the big novels, as time goes by, is an attempt to both explain the lives of Rick, Ilsa, and Victor before Casablanca, and then also the results of after. Um, it has it has its fans, and I don't um, begrudge them anything in that realm. Um, but the best homage to Casablanca, hands down, will always be Carrot Blanca. Um, Carrot Blanca. <laughs> The um, uh, the 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 Looney Tunes parody that came out in the '90s, um, and it's basically about uh, it's basically the plot of Casablanca, except the instead of tr papers of transit, it's blueprints for um, funny glasses. <laughs> 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 and Sylvester is Victor <laughs> Laszlo in it. Um, the kitty in all the Pepe Le Pew cartoons is Ilsa. Rick is obviously played by Bugs Bunny. Uh, Sam is played by Taffy Duck. Um, and uh, Major Strasser is played by Yosemite Sam. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, Louie is played by, of course, Pepe Le Pew. Because <laughs> of course he is. Um, and uh, one of my favorite lines in that parody actually comes from Daffy Duck. Uh, oh, and we, I, I should, we shouldn't forget, Tweety Bird is Ugati. <laughs> Right. And Tweety Bird does a wonderful Peter Laurie impression. <laughs> and uh, the but the the line that still gets me in Carablanca is um, uh, Bugs as Rick goes of all the juice joints and all the countries and all the wilds. She <laughs> picks this one. Daffy goes, I know what you mean. I had a girl once. She dumped me for a poodle supply salesman. <laughs> I just starts drinking. I just don't know why, but that line makes me laugh my ass off. Um, uh, but yeah, Cara Blanca. And then obviously this film. So the the purpose of Yesterday Here Ballyhoo Review is to talk about where films 
where the films of today get their influence, like what's the reach back, what's the lineage here? When it comes to Casablanca, it's kind of influenced everything in terms of genre to yeah. filmmaking to everything. You know, it's been a uh, influence on. It's it's funny. There there was a a a version that was pitched by Madonna where Madonna would play Ilsa and she wanted Ashton Kutcher to play Rick. Yeah. Um, the the movie Barbed Wire with Pamela Anderson has an identical plot to Casablanca. <laughs> Overdrawn at the memory bank is very much Casablanca. Um, um, the snowboarding comedy Out Cold, um, <laughs> which, which they replace as time goes by with Weezer's Island in the Sun, and the bar and the line is of all this of all the bars and all the ski towns in Alaska. She walks into mine. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, the only time that Out Cold and Casablanca are going to ever be mentioned uh, in the same room with the same prestige. <laughs> and also, there's a LucasArts um, a graphic adventure game from the 90s called Grim Fandango. It's actually a wonderful game. But they take a lot of visual and um, um, plot um, inspiration from Casablanca. And even the the initial trailer they made for Grim Fandango is uh, very much just just exactly like the Casablanca trailer. And it's like one of my favorite things to watch sometimes. Um, you should look that up. I shall, I shall look Zach. that up. Grim Fandango. Grim Fandango. Um... All right, I will. I will definitely take a look at that. But yeah, I, my the one that I always end up going to is Overdrawn at the Memory Bank, and it's primarily because of that MST3K episode about <laughs> Overdrawn at the Memory Bank. Um, but uh, you know, Casablanca as a story and the way it's structured as the final result is we have a lot of instances of self-sacrificing heroes. We have a lot of stories about doing the right thing. We have a lot of stories about. You can't have the girl at the end of the movie. You can't get the girl at the end of the movie is kind of popularized by this movie. Yeah. Now a happy ending. Now you have two different versions of a love story. You have a happy ending and you have a Casablanca ending where the, or, or a sad ending, you know, like, you know, death or something, but you know, like the letting them go, like if you love her, let her go. Or if you love him, let him go is very much off of the Casablanca mold. You, you, it's inescapable. Uh, yeah. I think though Casablanca to me, it's biggest legacy in terms of discussions had today is that it is one of the few films that never budges from lists of the greatest yeah. films ever made a topic that is extremely subjective. Um, whether you think it's, you know, grand illusion, citizen Kane, vertigo. Um, well, I mean, the Godfather, it, it, you I know, mean, like, there, there's, there's so many things that are, they're relatable from it. I mean, if you if you look at like the story, if you just look at the story of the refugees in Casablanca, they're stuck. They're uncertain of their future. It, I mean, it was reflecting the state of the world during that time during the war. But I mean, that's also like you could you could associate that with your own life. You know, like like maybe you feel stuck and there's nothing. You don't feel like there's any way you can get out of your current situation. You know what I mean? Like what's you know. This, what's more important than Rick and Ilsa getting together? Well, it's your responsibility to the community. You know what I mean? Like people go through that kind of every, you know, and that's especially now, Yeah, you know, it's kind of um, what we're going and, through now. 
Yeah, exactly. And that was kind of was going to lead into a little bit is the fact that another big point of influence that Casablanca has comes in the form of recognizing that a message from 78 years ago still resonates because for some reason we went back in time. (laughs) I mean, do you, I mean, it's like, it's like, do you strive to be a good person while evil is taking over society? Now I don't think, I don't think America has gone evil, but there are certainly things that are more accepted now. You know what I mean? Yeah, that there are things are terrible. Are, well, the, the way I've always been looking at it since these four years have unfolded is that a lot of things returned that, um, uh, that that I I would have naively assumed we didn't have to deal with anymore. Like I didn't think the Nazis would come back. I didn't yeah. think we'd have to be put in Rick Blaine positions of who do you choose in your life. But we are at that point. Yeah. We've had to make those hard choices because of uh, the combination of disgruntlement or also the fact that nobody learned their fucking lesson from 78 years ago. It's, I mean, like, I not to get angry, but, like, that's what it is. Is like this. Well, I mean, the, yeah, it's like, you know, Rick's fighting between idealism and cynicism. You know what I mean? Yeah, Ilsa's fighting exactly. between love and duty. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what do you do? You know, and, yeah. there's, and there's lots of... There's lots of imagery like the film has elements of film noir, German expressionist, melodrama, documentary. You know what I mean? All coming from Curtiz's background and his ability to meld that. And and there's lots of prison imagery in the movie. You know what I mean? For 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 the main characters, you know, there's so there's so many shots like through the blinds or through lattice work in the bar. You know what I mean? Or, Or shadows falling on you know, certain parts of the, the characters' bodies and wh- what have you. And it's just, um, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, that, well, and, and we when we talk about the imagery in Casablanca, you know, like there's there's never been a movie that has photographed the, its stars the way that movie does. Like, it's 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 kind of remarkable how each, he, each angle on the actors is an iconic image of that actor in their own right. But also the way, like, one one of my favorite camera movements in that film has nothing to do with the noir and shadow that we get in there. Although, as you said, we get pre-noir in there, we get expressionism. But when we are entering into Rick's Cafe, it's a traveling shot where you meet, you get all the information of what this cafe is in one single shot, all to the tune of music, set to that tune of music that, uh, as Dooley Wilson is saying, not singing, it had to be you. Um, it's something that still sets my heart on fire every time I see it. Like it is just yeah. a, it is a, uh, a remarkable shot. And actually to go back to the kind of noir expressionism or creating a mood, the final shot, um, where it's wide overhead of Rick and Louie walking off into the fog, you know, you have, you have an uncertain future for them that they are more than willing to enter into boldly knowing that they've made the right choice. You have the fog settling in. It's, it's, it's very calming for a movie that's put you through an hour and 43 ish minutes of, of danger and intrigue and suspense. Like there's a lot of suspense in this movie. Like there's suspense in this film it's not Hitchcockian suspense, but it's like it's a it's a suspense that would make somebody like I would imagine make somebody like Hitchcock take notice because there's definitely a tension going on mainly at the hands of character motivation and desire. It has yeah. 
little to do with a plot so much as it has to do with Rick's decision that he's not going to give anybody these papers. So the tension lies around that. Tension lies around will Victor and will Victor escape? Will Strasser get him? There is there's palpable tension as everybody is trapped in this world where they can't get out. You'd sell your soul for a passport, but you can't get out. There is it, it's a very much a it's it's a very vibrant desert prison that everybody is uh, stuck in. Um, yeah. What's amazing is is that it doesn't feel like a prison until you start digging back the layers and realizing that it is a prison they are all trapped in. Um, right. And uh, uh, t- to wrap it up with with like a a, mo- a a movie that has continued to stay in the zeitgeist for good reason. Um, you know, I've I watched I've watched this movie more than once once a year minimum since I first saw it with my grandfather and uh, a, a, a lot of the reasons that I love Casablanca beyond everything we've discussed for three hours <laughs> is uh, the the ultimate fact is is that this is the close one of the best and closest memories I have with my grandfather of something that birthed a big love of golden age Hollywood in me. If you, if the, 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 the origin point of where this podcast even starts is with my grandfather getting that tape of Casablanca and us watching it all the way through. Yeah. And so that, that's where this hall comes from. You don't, we don't, we're not sitting here talking about Hitchcock, let alone this movie without that happening. So for everything else, Casablanca, the reason I would even attempt to talk about it for this long, let alone period, is because it means that much to me that even if I if, even if I can get you on the mic and just talk about how much the film means to me, that's enough. We could have just done a five minute episode. Yeah, fine, but, well, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it's when like when I started doing research, I thought it was crazy how many one the story of of all the extras being uh, refugees. You know what I mean? Um, the director, you know, was 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 from Hungary. You know, uh, Paul Henried was from Hungary. Uh, Peter Lorre was Hungarian. You know, S S Z Sakal was you know was born in Budapest. He was a, a star of the Hungarian scene, you know stage yeah. and screen. Yeah. And like, yeah, and how much? And yeah, and Conrad Veidt was like, you know, was married. Was you know a staunch anti-Nazi. And, you know, his wife was Jewish and he fled he fled Europe because of Hitler's ride, rise to power, as as yep. did um, as Z Sakal and Paul Henry. And it's mm-hmm. just, you know, it's just crazy that like like people's personal experiences like just lent to this, you know, um, lent to this movie like um, Michael Curtiz's father, brother and sisters died in Auschwitz. Um, mm-hmm. S.A. Sakal's had three sisters that were perished in Nazi concentration camps. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah, it's just crazy. Uh, The, the, the amount of people that were not able to get to safety. Yeah. is staggering. Yeah. The representation. And it's not even, it's not just in Casablanca. It's also throughout Hollywood from the mid thirties up till the end of the war. A lot of these directors, a lot of these studio heads are working day and night not just to make these movies they're also working to track down and find their relatives and get them out of there yeah Um, a lot of money uh exchanged in order to do that carl lemley spent the majority of his fortune 
to get family members back uh, to get family members to America. Um, yeah, there Willie Willie Wyler uh, was an immigrant, and Willie Wyler um, went overseas again to document the war, and he was taken through his old village, and saw the store that his parents owned, and saw that it was there no more, it was not yeah. there anymore, and it it shook him the way it shook the other uh, five. Uh, the other four directors that went um, with him that were a big profile. Um, World War Two is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a situation. It's hard for us to fully fathom unless we dig as deeply as you and I tend to dig into subjects of this matter to understand that Hollywood is a, was a, was a business built out of immigrants with a big dream. Yeah. And what's amazing about Casablanca's status within all this is that I think there's something in anybody who watches it, unless they're a terrible, terrible person. There's <laughs> something in every person that sees that film and somehow intrinsically knows this is a melting pot of a movie. Yeah. Um, you don't even have to know that fact to understand the story going on with these refugees. It's all there. Yeah. It was there when I was 10 years old watching it on a tube TV. It was there for you when you were 18 years old watching it on a DVD on your computer. <laughs> this, or this is not, this is, this is a story that's intrinsic to us because we're taught at a very young age about the American experience and what it means from immigration all the way down to patriotism. And this film is chock full of both. And one of the reasons why I think the film is, is even more important than ever because of the last four years is because a lot of the lessons that it still, that it still teaches are lessons that were lost and yeah. amidst a lot of the, amidst, amidst a lot of terrible people ascending to power and some people who are still in power that need to go. And, uh, you know, not to, I mean, I'm not going to make this primarily political. I'm just pointing out a fact is this yeah. a lot of things in Casablanca are things we're fighting right now. And, and, yeah, but yeah, but I will say that like when you think of Casablanca as like an American classic, that is exactly what it is. It is a film about. It, there's a lot of things about the American dream and that uh, the American spirit in that movie. Yeah, there's also the the fighting spirit, the rebellious spirit, the spirit of the patriotism in in the in in its in its most um, purest forms that isn't tainted. Um, or of uh, uh, ha- of a vilified nature, um, it is. It is a. It's also a study in um, morality, in righteousness, and in heroism in general. Arguably, one of the biggest com- contributions Casablanca makes to cinema is redefining heroes, mm-hmm. redefining how we see a hero. Um, I know we made our jokes about Star Wars up at the top, but Han Solo doesn't happen without Casablanca. Yeah. Um, Indiana Jones certainly doesn't happen without a Casablanca because Henry yeah. Dr. Indy, Indy is a character that, you know, he's very, very much a good guy, but he also has his, you know, his devious side. If you get yeah. my, my meaning, um, <laughs> obviously we talked about that shot. Um, but you know, you also, I mean, like we're seeing if we're going to go back to the Star Wars analogy as 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 le- recently as Poe Dameron is a, is yeah. a 
is a very much a character in that vein. He's written on that Han Solo vein. Well, that doesn't happen without a Rick Blaine. Um, and I and I and I think that you have a lot of heroes in various different films that only do the right thing because something like Casablanca exists. Yeah. Do you get Endgame and Tony Stark snapping his fingers at the end? Spoilers for Endgame, by the way. Do you get <laughs> the spoiler? Wait, what? Do you? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, you didn't watch a movie last year? Oh, it's a shame. Everybody watched it. Yeah, sucks to be you. Anyway, <laughs> but you don't. I don't think I. I would argue that you don't get the sacrifice Tony makes at the end of that movie without the sacrifice made in Casablanca. Right. It's it's just a trait. It's not it's not a specific. It's just a trait that follows through all the way into today. Yeah. Um, Matt, thank you so much for chatting with me for oh, as long as we did on Casablanca and its legacy. You're welcome. I I had I had one I had two more factoids I wanted to point out. Bring them up, and they are a connection to Batman. Woo! <laughs> can you can you guess? No, I can't. Oh, okay. So Conrad Veidt played in the Man Who oh, Laughs. Oh wait, yes, I do. Conrad so, Veidt, which, which was the the visual inspiration for the Joker. Yep, the man who laughs. The um, man who that, laughs. That, Im- that image of uh, Conrad Veidt's stuck smile is yeah. how you get such wonderful things as Cesar Romero, yeah, yeah, uh, Jack Nicholson, Heath Ledger, yes, um, and um, I think there's another guy, and then Wonky Phoenix, uh- <laughs> <laughs> um, and Ar- Arthur Edison, the DP. Mm-hmm. He shot the Bat in 1926, which yep was also a connection anyway i was gonna i wanted to i wanted to end on two batman facts um yes because i got my jack you know, benny facts in so for it posterity only makes, it's, it's only fair <laughs> <laughs> um and, and i mean and you know i'm pretty sure batman's favorite movie is casablanca let's be honest uh, why know? would it not be yeah, I, yeah. I mean i don't know i think it's that and full metal jacket and that's it <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why it's Full Metal Jacket. I just pulled a title out my ass. Um, thank you again, Matt, for sitting down yeah, with man. this. This is going to be this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Um, we will have more episodes coming up on the next episode. I don't know what it is yet because we have stopped pre-recording in advance. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so stay tuned, though. But I will have Matt Willicks back to chat about some Universal Monsters. But more than Yay. likely, the next time I have you on board, though, I think you and I need to talk about either one of two things. I'll pitch them to you now. One is before Casablanca, there was a movie that came out called All Through the Night uh, with Humphrey Bogart and Conrad Veidt. And it is much goofier. Uh, And it has has a lot of Nazis getting clobbered. So I think we should talk about that. Okay. Um, But then the other one is you gave me two Abbott and Costello movies that I've never seen before. Oh, okay. Yeah, and um, uh, from from when they went away from Universal uh, to different studios to do them, uh, so I think we should definitely tackle those. Absolutely. Um, but um, but f- until next time, ladies and gentlemen, good night. Bye bye.
This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R E V U E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. 